What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Very excited to chat with today's guest. But before we start, I wanted to quickly thank everyone who applied to our Mechanics of Poker coaching program. We only had 10 spots available, so unfortunately, I know many of you missed out. But make sure to keep on following the channel, sign up to our email list so you get notified next time we reopen. All right. In today's episode, we will have a chat with Dutch high-stakes MTT player Jans Arends better known as Graf Tackle Online. Jans has been playing MTTs for 13 years and his first significant boost was winning the famous Sunday Million on PokerStars for 200k. After that, it took him another five to six years to really reach the high stakes he plays now and profiting millions along the way, establishing himself as one of the best players on the internet. He recently also showed his skills away from the computer, winning 30k Triton event in Vietnam and getting second in the 15k, cashing for over 1.5 million dollars. Next to his impressive poker results, he also has a very impressive Twitter feed, so would highly recommend giving him a follow there. As always, we are joined by my co-host and co-mechanics of poker coach Adam. Adam, how are your Twitter skills? <laughs> I don't tweet at the moment, so they're non-existent. But I have checked out John's Twitter, and it's yeah, very funny, but also uh, yeah, very educational. He's got some good like uh, tweets around poker concepts, poker players, and yeah, very good. But, yeah, looking forward to today's guest. I'm quite open in terms of where this conversation could lead. I'm quite intrigued about his early career win of the Sunday Million, how that shaped his career in a good way or a bad way. I think it could go uh, yeah either side there in terms of he could either end up playing too high or he could end up losing half his role. And then obviously he's had a very recent score on the Triton and yeah, basically trying to map out his storyline from that Sunday Million win to the Triton win and everything in between. So yeah, very looking forward to uh, getting the story together. Well, before we start, I would like to give a big shout out to the sponsor from our podcast, which is GTO Windsert. GTO Wizard has made studying poker accessible for everyone and is, in my opinion, one of the best places to go if you are serious about improving your poker game. Next to having access to all GTO solutions of every spot, MTTs, cash, doesn't really matter, spins, having the ability to upload your hands and let Wizard find it for leaks, you will also get access to weekly coaching webinars in which various coaches, including myself, Educate you on the most important spots to start crushing the game. 
So go over to gtowizard.com slash mechanics. And to get you started, we will give you 10% off using the slash mechanics code. Okay, that's gtowizard.com slash mechanics. At the end of this podcast, we will have a giveaway where you can win one free membership to GTO Wizard. So make sure to stick around to the end. But for now, let's hop into our conversation with Jans, a.k.a. Graftekel. All right, Mr. Arends, there he is. Thank you for coming on the pod. Really looking forward to have this chat with you. Hello. Hello, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I think uh, a lot of the audience, especially the ones that are maybe not so focused online, maybe first started to hear a bit more of you recently because you recently uh, made quite a name for yourself in the live poker scene. Pinking, I think, the 30K and getting second in a 15K Triton event in Vietnam, if I'm correct. Yep, that's correct. So how was that trip for you? Well, I mean, uh, obviously very good. Um, yeah, I mean, like live poker in general or like historically has not been very good for me. Uh, not that I played that much, but definitely went to my fair share of uh, EPT stops, for example. And I never really seemed to do that well, like especially compared to online. Um and I think therefore I also never really enjoyed it that much. And then I saw the the tried stops, um, the earlier ones, and it always looked like it was very uh, a lot of fun, like a good mix of like you know high stakes racks and then uh, a bunch of amateurs. So like really fun fields to play. Also everything seemed like super well organized. I mean the higher the buy-ins, usually the more uh, enjoyable the experience in my uh, in my experience anyway. And so I, I was like, okay, I have to go to one of these stops. And then Vietnam came up and I was like, okay, I mean, I live in uh, in Vienna now. I can do it tax-wise compared to uh, the Netherlands where I lived earlier. Um, never been to Vietnam. So this seemed like the stop to go to. And uh, yeah, I mean, I ended up going. And obviously, I mean, I being basically the first two tournaments I played, uh, essentially. So it's it, yeah, it was a it was a dream uh, stop in terms of live poker, yeah. When you, when you mentioned that in previous live stop, maybe you didn't really get the success that you wanted you also didn't play much so obviously variance is going to play a big factor did you maybe also see maybe other stops more as like a holiday slash poker playing and this one was maybe more like okay i'm actually here to play poker yeah yeah you could definitely say that actually uh, i mean ept's uh especially the the later ones that are played so let's say the more recent in, in more recent years it was also very much social event kind of thing so because you know as a poker player you you're you live in isolation, at least to some extent, right? You, you work at home, um, you, you do the, all the playing uh, by yourself. So live poker is nice in that way that you get to meet your uh, your peers. And uh, yeah, in that way, it was mostly also social. And yeah, the stops that I go to like Barcelona, Prague, these kind of cities, that's the stops that I like to go to. And obviously, yeah, these are nice cities as well. There's a lot of stuff to do. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say like in terms of um, approaching it from a professional standpoint, the, uh, the Trident stop was 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 different for sure, yeah. So you you now know the secret formula going forward. Well, the secret formula is just winning a lot of flips. To be honest, I mean, like you said, like the the, the sample you play in live book is so tiny compared to online. It's it's very very hard to to actually uh, you know like get the variance out of the sample. I mean, it's impossible basically, right? So you're always gonna be um, gonna gonna be a victim of the of the variance in some way. And uh, yeah, you, you just gotta hope to uh, to at some point uh, run good. And I mean, I did that now, but I like the, the five years before that, let's say, I was definitely down in live poker. So yeah, it's, and it can swing around in like three days. So kind of uh, funny how that works. 
get an idea for like some of the listeners, let's say, you know, an average week, how many tournaments do you play a week? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, like, let's say, I mean, it depends a little bit, of course, like if, if there's uh, online series going on. So let's say then, then I would play like five, six days a week. That would be a lot more tournaments than let's say my regular week where I would maybe play three days a week or two or three days a week, I guess. Um, I don't know. I'd say on average, maybe that's a tough question. Uh, maybe between like 75 and doing series like a lot more. Oh, that, 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 that's a lot of live poker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's like, uh, I mean, that's the, the that sample I probably don't play in a year. So, yeah. I mean, this must, especially for, for guys that, you know, made the conscious or maybe semi-conscious decision to mainly focus on live poker. Oh, it's, can, can, be, can be quite torture. I, I honestly, I have no idea how to do it. Uh, I, I, I've been thinking about this, especially after tracking. I was like, how do these guys that, that barely play online, how do they do it? Like they go to, I mean, they, they do go to a lot of stops to be fair, but like they, they play such a tiny sample and, and it's so easy to just run like bottom 5% or something and just break everything basically, right? I mean, how do you keep going after that? It's just, I, I have no idea how to do it. Uh, I, I think it's impressive that some, some of these guys, I mean, I saw one example, sorry, it's hard to call them out, but like for Triton specifically uh, in the app, you can look at everyone's results. And like, for example, Protrangelo is obviously like uh, a sicko. I think he bricked like 25 Triton tournaments in a row. He, he didn't have a single cash after playing like, I don't know how many stops. Like this is how brutal the variance can be so yeah it's it's it makes you think like and it's it's impressive that people keep going after such a streak yeah actually it was funny that you mentioned because a friend of mine he actually said exactly the same thing that you know we talked about this live variance and then he he said exactly the same about pretension mm -hmm. like ne never cashed yeah because yeah. It's, it's one of the it's one of the most extreme examples that i can think of I, I i imagine like he played some other stuff in between that he did cash but like if you just look at trident and, and trident is probably softer than most of the other stuff that he plays so it's even yeah it's it's it has to be a bottom x percent of run uh and yeah you can get that in tournaments easily someone has to get it right there's always yeah, like someone has to get it but these are always the fear that like you always you you know consciously about you know the variants but then there's always like this voice yeah okay but not me you know yeah yeah exactly well I, and i, I do it's you in tournaments uh, everyone's always talking about the the guy that gets the top one percent run right these are the guys that are in the spotlights and that everyone talks about, but the one that is in the bottom 1%, like, I mean, usually these people disappear. I think uh, when it happens online, there's there's some high six racks for sure that disappears. And I think sometimes this happens because they just go on such a bad run and not everyone can can go keep going through that. So, um, yeah. In the, comments, in the comments of the spot, I saw, I think a couple of times, the word survivor bias mentioned. Oh, and yeah. obviously, like throughout certain points in, in your career, Adam's career, my career, I'm sure there were stretches where, you know, if it would have gone worse or you would you would have run your bottom 1%, maybe you would have quit. You know, maybe maybe a little a little bit of heat came at the right moment that gave you enough motivation and like some external results to keep on going and that therefore you actually made it to the long run. Yeah, 100%. And I think especially in the, in the beginning, uh, when you're not that familiar with variants yet, and I mean, you don't have a big bankroll yet, like if you hit a bad run in the start, I think there's many people who probably start playing poker and they get like a pretty bad run at the start, you just give up, right? Oh, okay. I mean, it's just, I'm not as good as, at this as I thought, or I mean, it's, it's the game is harder than I thought. I don't know. Like there's many things you can think other than, oh, I'm, I'm bottom 5% run here or something, you know? So I think if I... Um, 
we'll get to that, I guess, when we talk through how I got started. But I, I got very lucky at, at the start. So definitely uh, one of the, the guys that is in the survivorship bias uh, group. But I try to be aware of that as well. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, we, we like it's easy to say everyone at the top, survivorship bias, move on. Well, obviously, obviously, you know, that's that that's too easy. Like I also saw the bridge. So thank you for uh, bringing it back to the start of your career. Because, you know, from the outside, looking into these winners, it's often easy to say and forget like about all the years that went uh, before you actually putting yourself in a position where you could play a Triton event like that. For example, yeah. I think you played, you started playing poker around 15 years ago and like the poker boom, uh, playing a small home games in the school breaks. Uh, so you did actually mention you ran good in the beginning, but I was just in general curious what attracted you towards the game when you started playing? What made you come back for more? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I remember that I was hooked from the start, basically. I, I mean, I've always been uh, into games, like just strategy games, board games, all this kind of uh, stuff. Um, and, and I guess I all, also always have had this like kind of obsessive nature uh, about this, uh, about games, for example. Like if I play a game, I'm, I really get into it and I really want to improve, uh, you know, try to try to beat the game or try to beat the people that, that are playing the game um so that was yeah like and especially in, in terms of folk like we we started playing like super recreational level level of course like school breaks penny stakes uh this kind of thing um but yeah the idea of trying to improve quicker than other people can improve and 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 especially if, if there's money involved like obviously um you know my, me and my family used to play quite a lot of games like board games for example and i i would just hate losing to the point where i would start crying after losing like this i was really i mean it was probably not a lot of fun to play, play these kind of games with me um and then when poker came around and, and money was involved as well i was like wow i mean i can i can try to get good at this game and actually you know win money and obviously at that point it was not about making a living from it but even making you know like 20 euros from it or something would be huge for me and and combining these two things is i think what really got me hooked pretty quickly uh just the strategy side of it trying to improve at a game obsessive nature about it and then the upside which other games don't have right if you win a game you feel good for half an hour or something and then you know you move on but with poker that's the upside of actually making money from it so yeah i mean the the, the combination of these two things was uh yeah i've gotten hooked immediately i think how soon did you realize that there was more to the game of poker than you know looking look looking to make a good hand to get the money in? When did you first like realize, hey, wait, there are certain strategies I can implement uh, that will actually change the outcome of the hand? And do you maybe recall like certain aha moment in the beginning? Like, oh, I remember in in a previous podcast, uh, Lucky Chewy said at some point I realized it was important to know how much money was actually in the pot. For example, that <laughs> I thought was a very interesting yeah. go break. I, I like, oh, wait. I don't specifically remember um, these kind of aha moments, but I mean, it, it probably took me longer than I would uh, like to admit, like uh, probably a few years, uh, because in the beginning, like, you, you don't play that regularly. Um, and it's and it's still like very recreational level. And, and back then there was also not like many ver uh, accessible poker content for pure amateur, right? Um, so I, I think I would read a, a little bit online, um, but not that much in the beginning. And then after maybe one or two years, I guess, Although, I mean, it's so long ago, I, I feel very old talking about this, but uh, it's so long ago that I, and, and my memory is really not the greatest. So, um, but I think it took me, it took me quite, quite some time before I really uh, figured out, okay, I, you, you know, you can actually, uh, you have a lot of resources to improve at this game. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, speaking of survivorship bias, like I, um, 
I started out playing free rolls online, so I, I never never uh, deposited any money. And um, I'm sure if you you guys remember Everest Poker, I don't think it exists anymore. But uh, Shastas, the Shastas, exactly. Yeah, you used to have this one or two table sit and go free rolls where you can win five cents, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I, I I started exactly in the same way. Then you get five cents, and then you bring it to the what was it, zero point one, zero point two cent cash game tables, and try to spin it up. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's, that's exactly what I did. I, I would, I would like grind the Shasta's, maybe grind it up into 50 cents or $1 or something, like endlessly playing these free rolls. And then uh, I remember very, very vividly, like uh, I used to take these shots at the cash games then. At some point, I think I had like $1, like was a big bankroll at the time for playing five, $5 or five cents uh, free rolls, right? So I go to this cash game and I remember getting it in set over set. I was, I, I got uh, overset it and, uh, and I, I picked the one out of it. <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, uh, many times after, like, I think if I would have not been that one other, I might have just given up. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like the most extreme for form of of, uh, of survivorship bias you can basically come up with. I'm not obviously not sure if I would have quit, but I remember like being, uh, I would have been pretty devastated if I if I didn't bring that one. And then I, I turned this like, I guess whatever I took out of the game, a few dollars. Um, and I, I started playing cash initially. A lot of people don't know this, I think, but I, I used to be um, a 25 and L uh, regular on um, nice. uh, was <laughs> because I moved from Everest to Betfair at some point. And, uh, but I, I was really a very shitty cash game player. I, I, I played too many tables. I, I think I had decent rate back, so I played, kind of played for rate back. And I mean, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I was, I was into poker, but I, I had to find my, my niche uh, still, so to speak. Then I think I played, randomly started playing some tournaments and I got very lucky uh, in the beginning. Uh, I remember that I, um, I think this was on Betfair as well. Uh, maybe it was like, a, I don't know, $20, $20 buy-in tournament or something. Obviously, there was no bankroll management at this time. So this this is probably like half my bankroll or something. And uh, and, and I, I think that for, I think, six $700. Uh, and I immediately after that, I, I um, because my friends I think were uh, at a party or something, and I, I went went to the town party, then spent like half of that money immediately. <laughs> so um, yeah, bankroll management was uh, was definitely not something I was very good at at the start. But then uh, then I got hooked uh, uh, by tournaments because I mean if you do well to start, like tournaments are a lot of fun. If you if you if you win, like there's nothing I think for me at least in poker that compares to like going deep into uh, in, in a tournament. And uh, yeah, I, I kept playing tournament, but still, uh, still pretty recreationally. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I was very bad still. And um, I was, uh, that, that was around the time that I finished high school. I was still playing under my dad's name. I, I guess I can say that because I don't play on that for anymore. Um, so it was not, it, it, it was, you know, kind of penny stakes and, and, um, and on the side kind of thing. Uh, and then when I started studying and I moved out of my, um, I moved, moved out of my parents' place, um, yeah, that, that's when I started playing a little bit more and uh, also kept playing tournaments. And uh, I was lucky enough to uh, very randomly bink, uh, bink the Sun a million. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, yeah, my uh, my kickstart. That's actually a, a funny story. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, this will be fun for people to hear. Uh, so this is like, let's say, the, the I think the first year that I started studying. And it was pretty much right after I moved out. So living on my own was uh, also pretty new. And um, so it was on a Sunday, and I mean, the, in this period, like everyone would just party every single day. So a couple of my friends were uh, partying somewhere, and they uh, their route to their uh, their place was um, like they, they they crossed my house basically, and so they they just randomly rang my doorbell at like 
I think 1 a.m. or something. Obviously, I was playing poker, so I was there. I opened the door. They just keep drinking in my room. Like, I mean, I think one of them left maybe it's like 5 a.m. The other one passed out on my bed, like behind me. I was still playing the Sun a Million. And uh, at some point, uh, I mean, I think I was three-handed and uh, we made a deal. And I wake up my friend, <laughs> like, dude, and he was obviously like super hungover. Like, dude, I think I think I just uh, won 200K. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what's going on here? And then uh, and it was already, like, this is already like very, very, uh, back then it's a million run until like nine or 10 in the morning, I guess, or something. Uh, and then, uh, and then I remember we, we walked together to the supermarket, got a crate of, uh, of beer, and just started started drinking and celebrating. It was uh, yeah, it was pretty wild at the time. But I think in the, in terms of aha moments after that, I got like really this realization like okay, first of all, you can make a lot of money. Like I mean, two hundred k and after taxes and um, and converting to euros, <laughs> I think maybe I was left with like hundred k euros, maybe a little bit more. But obviously, like as a student, it was completely broke that's an insane amount of money to to get and i was i really realized like okay i mean i guess you know you can really do this for a lot of money and i think if i want to do that then i should also tr put some effort into improving so after that i really started putting in a lot of hours uh, into improving like trying to get better at the game way more consciously than i i did before that so in in a funny way like banking a tournament was what made me uh, wanting to improve which is I, i'm not sure if that's the the way it usually goes for people yeah, so. i would say it's usually the opposite right then people yeah. so what made you realize that you know i i guess a lot of people would interpret it, hey i want to send a million oh wow apparently i'm great at poker let's let's you know co continue but you somehow realize like oh wait there's a great potential but you had a lot of self-awareness that you actually realized like oh i probably got quite lucky here as well there's a lot of potential if i improve my game yeah but it also i think it also means that before that i had a complete lack of self-awareness like i i think before that i yeah it's, it's weird I, I think i was i think i thought i was like pretty decent but after that i it really made me realize like wow there's, there could be a lot of money in this game and and it kind of shifted my mindset from just playing a little bit and i guess kind of trying to get lucky or thinking you're doing well but not really doing well to like wait, if this is, this could be a career path, you know, like, and I obviously also had, like, I mean, not necessarily the resources in, in the sense that I took on, like, an expensive coach or anything, but, like, if you start out with a huge bankroll, and in that time, like, 100k, if you play average stake, I don't even know what I played, maybe, like, $20 or something, uh, it's obviously such a huge bankroll that the, the risk of going broke is, is near zero, if, you, if you're not a huge DGN, so, uh, I think if you if you don't have that kind of backup uh, of, of a huge bankroll, it's it's a lot more difficult. I think to keep to keep grinding, maybe or have this peace of mind to uh, to really go for it. I guess it's interesting because I recall actually a story from uh, our fellow fellow Dutchman Joris, who was actually the first podcast guest that we had on. I think already on yeah, a year little ago, bit. and he actually yeah. also mentioned that you know it's like a similar story. Then he binked a big tournament, but then usually what happens is people think they're way better than they are, and they give away like half of it to a sort of higher stake community. So, yeah. but 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 this, this this didn't happen to you. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, uh, back then uh, there was this classic thing where like uh, half of the sun a million uh, winners would just instantly go to like the cash tables and, and dunk. dunk yeah, it exactly. All. That was very very common. Yeah, exactly. I remember that uh, there was this thing where like the high stakes cash guys would be waiting right after the sun a million would finish uh, on the cash tables just to catch these guys. But um, now the thing is, uh, like. 
there weren't really many high stakes tournaments. And since I kind of like swore off cash games at that point, uh, then it's pretty hard to lose 100k. Like the biggest tournament that ran weekly was, I don't know, maybe what was it? Maybe it was the seven million. I don't think that there even was a 500. At some point, Super Tuesday came and it was once a week, one 1k. And I think I didn't even play that at the start because I mean, I mean, there were only sickos in there in my mind anyway back then. Um, so yeah, I, I think if you're not like DJing it digging it up at the cash tables or like playing casino games or doing whatever else it's it's pretty hard to burn through a 100k bankroll at, at those six it depends because i was wondering the first time you won something you mentioned like you know you won like 700 bucks you spent half of it celebrating did you spend half of it celebrating as well because that that, that would go quite fast uh no i no no of course just but a I mean, crate of like, beer that's it the thing is like yeah, I, like if it's it's easy to spend a few hundred bucks on, on drinks, but it's not easy to spend. I mean, right. now I guess it, it would be, but like back then, I lived in the student town. Like a beer cost like one euro or something, not not even probably. So I mean, and and it's not like you, you could even drink cocktails the whole night and not spend more than like a few hundred bucks. So I, I don't really think it would have been possible for me to burn through half of that uh, unless I did some really crazy stuff. So the the bink made you realize like, okay, wait, there's a lot of money involved in this game there is a lot of potential i see a certain career path you also realize that strategically you know there's a lot of room to develop in poker you also already mentioned that there were quite a lot of resources available do you remember still one of the first resources you tapped into when you were actually trying to improve as a poker player and do you maybe still recall like what kind of strategical sort of aha moments you got from those resources um yeah, I mean, I do remember that I, I got like subs because, because back then, like studying, it was basically forums and... Um, and Were you and on Poker News NL as well? No, not really. I was on uh, 2 plus 2. I, no, ah. Poker News NL, I, I have an account there, but I, I never used it for a strategy. Uh, but I was on 2 plus 2. I, I, I was somewhat active, I guess, uh, with um, with like hand histories. And back then, it, the, the forum was really a good uh, resource, I think. And uh, yeah, the, the biggest training tool back then, I think was uh, videos, training sites. Um, I remember there was this, I think it was called like Tournament Poker Edge or something like the- before, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember dude, that one. Cracked, like before Run It Once was around, basically you had a couple of sites, I, I subbed to them. And I, I remember even thinking back then, like, wow, one of this, this some of this content is like really shit. <laughs> and I was a whale, right? Like, I mean, if you, I think if you look at back at some of these videos, uh, I mean, yeah, even 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 a whale like me would, would think like, okay, is this even worth it? Uh, but obviously, there would always be a couple of good coaches, and then I would learn a lot from 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 them, and and basically consume all the all their content. And then uh, after that, yeah, at some point, I'm not, I'm not sure when one started, but I remember very like consuming a very high amount of videos from them as well uh, at the start um yeah i mean solvers came around so much later like this was already when i was like kind of an established uh, entity rack i guess um so yeah it was mostly just talking histories uh and then mostly like online through forums and uh, and just uh yeah watching videos basically yeah, usually people at some point in their career they find People are on a similar journey. Was this the same for you that maybe on 2 plus 2 or maybe on some of these forums or where you're watching videos that you found other people who were kind of on the same path as you that yeah, you could start good. studying with, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I had, uh, I was lucky enough that I had some friends who also played poker from my, uh, like, let's say high school football um, uh, friend group. And they were somewhat on the same tra trajectory as well. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think if I have any had any contact with like foreign people. I, I don't really remember. I don't I don't think so until uh, I got involved with Bitvi as a uh, Pat's asked me to to come on as a coach. And and obviously then I made a made a lot of lot more contact like uh, contacts exponentially basically, uh, but before that I'm I'm not entirely sure I don't think I really had like a study body or something like this. All right, yeah. Adam, I'm uh, I'm curious. I actually looked you up on uh, Handemop to see if you have any tournament experience, and I saw zero results. Never, never dipped your feet into the live uh, MTT scene. Maybe you never cashed or just never entered. That's also an option, of course. Yeah, never entered. I knew how big of a whale I'd be in those games. Also playing in Bali, the live scene is zero. There's now obviously the Triton, there's Macau, there's stops. But uh, yeah, I feel like I'd be very much a whale in those games. And yeah, it's having doubled. So you'll, you'll not find any MTT results from me <laughs> going forward. But yeah, Jans, I'm really interested to know your what happened after the Sunday Mill. So... Uh, Obviously, you've won this big bank and you've went into this kind of motivated state to uh, improve your game, which is great. And I think, as Rene touched on, it's not the usual path. Most players go and play higher. The ego gets a bit inflated and they'll give a bit away to the higher games whilst they kind of learn. You seem to have had a very level-headed approach and went straight into work on your game. So uh, I'm wondering what changed after this, this big score. So you mentioned your bankroll was quite secure. You couldn't go broke. So this gives you a peace of mind, which I think we'll get into later with why you've got such a strong mindset. But what, what changed after that Sunday million win? And how did you start to progress from that moment? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I was I was still studying uh, in, uh, at uni at the time. So I was like kind of splitting my time uh, between uh, these two things. Uh, I mean, there was more stuff I did, of course, but like roughly. Um, so I, I didn't really want to commit yet to being like a, a professional, so to speak. Um, but I did, I did really like, like before that I would maybe play like 90% uh, and then study 10% or something. And I, I definitely made a big uh, shift in that regard, like way more study time compared to, compared to playing time. Um, yeah, sorry, I've, I've, I forgot the, the other part of your question. Um, I guess it was about, about the mindset shift, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like uh, getting this awareness that it was that, that it would be it could be a legit career path uh, was, was very important, I guess. And I guess I needed like a big win for that to, to become uh, to, to become conscious of that. Uh, I think uh, yeah, it's, it's it's I cannot really describe how it happened, but I remember that that after after this thing, I was really like, okay, I mean, I, I guess I can do this, and I guess there's really a lot more money in this than I than I thought. Obviously, I was aware of the prizes that that were up top in big tournaments, but I, I never really pictured myself winning anything like that. Um, and yeah, after, after that, I, I, I was on a pretty steady grind. I think um, if, if you, if, in those days, I think basically no one was studying a lot and everyone was, was terrible. I mean, compared to today's standards anyway. And I think if you outwork your opponents a little bit in very soft games, you can really do very well. And I, I think uh, if, if I mean, I could look back at the, at the results back then. Like, I think I was I had a pretty steady grind. Like, not not a lot of variance, at least in in MTT sense, in terms of buy-ins. Just a pretty uh, pretty nice steady lineup. Um, so it was yeah, it was it was very good grind for me. But I, I didn't uh, I didn't call myself a, a poker professional until I don't know, probably like five five years later or something, uh, because I was I mean I was still set on finishing my uh, my uni uh, degree, but. And yet I, I miserably failed uh, after like five or six years of trying, you know, uh, yeah, I, I kept postponing the stuff that I didn't like. 
uh, and then in the end you're left with like I don't know five courses or something that you still have to do and I just I mean at some point I was just playing so much poker and doing pretty well I just couldn't find the motivation anymore but it was a pretty big uh, L that I had to take like it, it really felt like a defeat to give up on that so that's why I think I, I held off on, on calling myself a professional for such a long time because yeah I, I I really felt like I, it, it's kind of a failure if I if I don't even manage to finish like a, a bachelor degree. But uh, at some point, I was like, I, I mean, I, I kept registering at the beginning of the year. Maybe I'll do like one or two courses, you know, this kind of mindset. Obviously, I mean, I think maybe the last few years I I paid my tuition and, and probably didn't do a single thing. So uh, after that period, I was like, uh, I have to make a decision now. Like this is obviously not worth it anymore to put any more thought or effort in. I just call myself a poker pro and then I really went out and told people like I'm a poker pro now and and once you say that like th this is the next step I guess to like professionalism um then I I made another shift like really started going for it like started planning my my study process like um you know really uh put a lot of effort into improving and getting the most out of it basically yeah, very interesting. So uh, I think from the outside looking in, most people would be like, what, you won the Sunday Million? You went back to uni, just went back to class the next day and started studying the textbooks. I'm sure like a lot of people would be like, whoa, I can't believe like you weren't able to do that. But at the same time, I can relate to um, almost like unfinished business. I can like myself go for university, even though like I didn't know where it was going to lead to. There's an element of this needs to be done. This needs to be complete. I need to tick this off. And once you get like many years into it, there's almost like in the back of your mind, this just needs to be completed. So I can relate to that. Uh, so for yourself, like five years in this kind of playing poker and doing your studies, how was it when you made that transition? So you said like the kind of calling yourself a pro, almost that moment where you're like, I'm pro now. And almost like everything changed in terms of a mindset shift. So in terms of your approach then, what changed? Was it the, just the hours you were able to put in? You already mentioned you were outworking some of your opponents at that time. So when you did go full-time pro, what, what sort of kind of approaches did you implement at that time? Yeah, well, I think like it, it was not like I was spending a lot of time on my my studies at that point anyway, like a little bit maybe, but really not that much. But it was mostly, I think, call, calling myself a pro really mattered in terms of like total hours that I that I put into improving. Like playing volume was never really a problem because I really enjoyed it. Um, but at that point, I didn't really enjoy studying that much yet. So uh, yeah, and, and once I started calling myself a pro, I was like, okay, now... I have to have a you know somewhat professional approach if I want to succeed in this. And obviously now I also don't have like the excuse of like, oh yeah, I'm still doing uni. And whereas in reality, I was just watching Netflix on the couch or you know, going out drinking with my friends. Um yeah, so so like this, this is a, another like it's like kind of a second mindset sh shift from being a part-time student and like a hobby player. Uh, to actually being a professional poker player, which comes, in my mind, at least it came with some uh, responsibility, like actually putting an effort in into improving and at least you know making very sure that you're a profitable player, uh, also for the for the longer uh, longer run. It's interesting that the power of identity when we put a label on ourselves, like really not that nothing much changed like around you, but for you everything changed because now you're a pro now it's serious now it's i'm wasting time this is, this like, is my career. i think almost literally nothing changed uh like from, from the one day to the next day but i i just stopped calling myself a student and started calling myself a poker player and it it, it made a lot of difference and it, it's weird how that works um yeah it's, it's it's kind of tough to explain but i i yeah i came to the conclusion like i should just I basically am a professional poker player, minus the, the taking like a full responsibility for it, basically. So I might as well start calling myself 
a professional poker player, tell other people that I'm a professional poker player because it also creates a, a responsibility to the outside world, right? Uh, oh, you're a professional poker player, so what does your life look like? And I kind of just tell them like, yeah, I basically spend half my day on the couch um, and I just uh, do whatever I want. And then in the evening, maybe I'll, I'll play some tourneys and, and see what happens. Like, this is not really, I mean, then you're a poker player, but not a professional poker player. So uh, I, yeah, I think I think telling people about this and, and making this uh, shift from, from being a student to a poker player was definitely a, a kind of a, an important uh, step for me. Yeah, and I think it's it's great for you that it was such a clear switch because it could have easily uh, almost like drifted in from being a student to being a poker pro. Like could have you, know, you stopped studying and now you're kind of a pro, but you just went full, okay, now I'm a pro. Everyone knows I am and I'm going to fully identify as one and live my life as a, as a pro. And I think it's really important because once you live, once you're trying to be an identity and you stay congruent with it, you tell people around you, that's what you are. It's much easier to, to live that life, to stay with it. Cause you're like, well, of course I'm a pro. Like this is, this is the identity I've kind of stepped into. So yeah, really powerful. So in terms of like what happened after that, so we've got like probably this probably a 2014 time, I'm guessing. And yeah, how did things start to progress when you started to think, take, them, take things more seriously? Obviously your bankroll was already in a great place, which is often the thing most players at this stage of their career are trying to get the bankroll moving. You've already kind of ticked that box early in your career. So what are some of the kind of objectives at this stage of your career and how did it progress? Yeah, yeah. So uh, quickly to go, to go back to the size, because I think one one big reason that I that I uh, also was so set on like finishing my bachelor's degree was because I think in the back of my mind, I always had this feeling like, you know, I'm not 100% sure if it works out with poker. Like this is not, it's it's not a, it wasn't, wasn't a very conscious career path that I chose. Um, so what if it doesn't work out and at least I want to have my bachelor's degree so I can do whatever, like a regular job if I want to, or like do, do a master's degree and I can get a job after that. So I think this was maybe also what helped me back a little bit that I always had this, um, yeah, this idea in the back of my mind, like I could still fail as a poker player, even though I think it wasn't really a realistic possibility at that point anymore. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, this 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 I think was also a big contributor to the to the, to the shift that I made after calling myself a professional. But yeah, after after I did that, I I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I think I I just had a very steady grind. Like uh, I, I really put even more time into improving. That's that's for sure. Um, I think this was also around the time that uh, I got involved with Bit B. Although I'm not 100 sure on the timeline, but um, yeah, at, at some point. Um, Patrick Leonard, who was who was on the podcast, by the way, I, I saw a little bit of that too. was uh, was a good guest. Uh, yeah, he he reached out to me um, because they had, they had just started the stable, I think, and he he just randomly in the in the Pokestars chat uh, asked for my contact info, and then uh, we started talking a little bit, and he, he told me like, yeah, we're looking for uh, for coaches, um, and uh, you seem to be a pretty good player. Are you interested? And then we worked out a deal, and uh, I started coaching for them. And it it's really that that was really a big boost for me as well because I think I was like pretty decent before that. But if you really have a good network of people um, that are all very good, and I mean even those horses that were in the stable, a lot of them were also very good. Um, and you have a big group of people that you get constant feedback from. Uh, this this is really beneficial. And I I, I think before that I, I completely underestimated that. Um, and I even remember th thinking like, ha, do I really want to be a poker coach like is this something that i would enjoy i don't know i don't know these people like should i get involved with this and and i think if i look back on, on this period like i improved way quicker than i could have on my own like uh, you get so so much more input like yeah it's it's just a uh, really a big difference and i think uh, yeah there's, there's a big downside to doing, doing things on your own as well obviously there's some upsides but i think uh, a group process is uh, and especially in a time where i think this was still 
still before solver time, although I'm not 100% sure, but I think it, it definitely like studying wasn't as structured as it can be right now. Uh, yeah, having a, having a group of people that, that talk about the game every single day or every every minute basically is, uh, is very beneficial. Mm. So it sounds um, so like a big transition moment for yourself where you went from grinding solo, doing things by yourself, I'm guessing, with a, a small network to not much of a network around you, to then being in Big B amongst some of the best players in the world. How did that shift change you? Because I think it's it's very interesting when you go from a just yourself mentality to where you're now involved in a team. There's a lot of like shifts that need to be made. Some of, the, some of them are natural, which feel nice. Some are like, oh, do I have to spend my own time on this? So tell me if you like that kind of transition period for you. Yeah, it was it was kind of uh, abrupt, I guess, because you yeah, you basically uh, all of a sudden you become part of, of this big group of people. Um, and, and I think when I joined the stable, it wasn't that big yet, but like a lot of people joined after. Uh, so it's really a huge group. and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I never really had that before. They can uh, talk hands with with other elite poker players, so to speak. I mean, I, I, in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't an elite poker player back then. I think, but um, I mean, and in terms of the MTT scenes, like the big, the big, uh, the final end bosses were were all in those uh, in in that Discord server, for example. And I really, I learned a lot from them, and I hope they also learned something from me. I, like, obviously, I have all had different perspectives on the game and. But I think yeah, like getting input from from that level of player is is very important. And in nowadays in MTTs, I think it's a little bit more common. You have like especially in this like the super high level scene, for example, you have like these kind of cliques or, or groups uh, that work together a little bit. I think, uh, and there's a reason I think for it because it's it's so much more uh, like you can improve so much faster if you if you if you work in a group. Um, it's also it help really helps for motivation, like seeing other people have great success. Um, or doing well with a certain strategy, it can really motivate you. Or like, see how hard pe other people work. Like, I mean, Pat's a good example of that. I mean, the guy, uh, <laughs> I don't think he ever slept. Like, this guy was just constantly answering to hand histories or whatever. Like, I, I've, I've no idea how he, how he even does that. So it, it can also be inspiring if you see other people like really work very hard and having success that way. Like, this can this can be very, uh, very big motivator for yourself. Yeah, it's come up quite a lot on the podcast, the importance of a network and getting the right people around you. How do you think your career would have unfolded if the big opportunity didn't arise? What trajectory were you, were you on at that point? And let's say that opportunity didn't come up. How do you think things would have unfolded over the next two or three years in particular? That's hard to say. I mean, I would have liked, uh, I would like to think that I would have met other people somehow, um, maybe through live poker, because like back then I really didn't play live poker at all, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm would have met other people that I could have worked with. I think at some point, if you have good success in entities, like that obviously uh, stands out to some people, like, and, and maybe people would have reached out or, I mean, I, I also did this in the past, so sometimes like reach out to someone who I think is good, like try to get into contact. I think something probably would have worked out, but like really being thrown in a, in a big group of people, like a good network is, is obviously uh, very rare and very valuable. I think this is something that people, massively undervalue um i mean not only in, in poker i guess in, in most uh, industries uh, this is very very valuable and it, it's something that you cannot put a put a price on but it's it's it, yeah it's worth a lot and it's something that i definitely very much underestimated before that and even maybe maybe even during that time like it was mostly after i was like wow this, this is actually a pretty sick opportunity that i got and i'm glad i, I took it and i had, had enough sense to not like turn it down and be like ah no i'll just do this on my own you know because i i, I was definitely a little bit of an uh ansel ganger uh i'm not sure if that's also an english word but 
like a guy that does stuff on his own like i like to study on my own um and i still do but like i i now definitely see the value of uh, of having a network and, and using it also yeah 100 you mentioned like being around people with good work ethic sharing like like-minded people sharing like high histories and talking strategy also like the group environment if you like supporting each other going through a shared experience poker players very often can feel isolated that they're the only person going through a I said experience to be around other players who are like living the same life as you and you're like oh just normal part of part of the part of the course no big deal it's a, a nice thing to be involved in so yeah it sounds like you had the the right people at the right time so for yourself like what were some of the challenges moving up stakes because looking back and some of the questions we asked you uh, there wasn't like a particular like challenge or rock bottom moment that you hit but i'm guessing like throughout the kind of rise to the, the top the top even being in the the big, big community around great players i guess there's some challenges for yourself in terms of moving up stakes or progressing with your career anything that comes to mind in terms of challenges you ran into or challenging periods or years of your career moving up yeah um i think early on or like uh, let's say the first five ten years i don't really think there were that many like i've had some downswings but nothing i mean especially compared to my bankroll it wasn't that worrisome at the time like i've definitely had stretches where especially in entities this is, it is a big thing i think because the downswings can extend uh you know quite long uh and and this is also why i'd like to play pretty decent volume always because time-wise if you're downswing especially if you, let's say you play you know uh, live tournaments only your, your downswing could be three years you know and this is if you if you're on a three-year downer this is pretty uh, hard to take mentally i think and, and online if you play decent volume obviously you can you could go through like a few months where you had a you know a slightly worse period but uh yeah it, it never really any longer than that um so yeah i've had a few of those but i i, I don't really remember being very devastated by that uh but i guess if I would have to say name something from like uh, more recently, like online high stakes tournaments, it's just I yeah I've really struggled with those. Like I've always done really well in, in everything. Let's say up to five k's, and then I, I think I, I would hope it's mostly variance, but I, I've really been destroyed in uh, in like let's say ten k plus online, and this is really like a barrier that's and this this is also why the Triton score is really nice for me because. Even though it was live, I would have preferred actually if it was online, even though it was obviously a lot of fun to win a live tournament and it was fun that people could see it, like my friends and family and everything. But um, yeah, like this is definitely something that I'm still um, struggling with a little bit, like getting uh, getting good results in like 10K plus online, because I obviously you play always play a tiny sample. I'm not even sure how many I played lifetime online, but it's kind of me be more than a few hundred. Um, so there's a lot of variance involved and yeah at some point you start thinking like do i even beat these tournaments should i stop playing these tournaments I've, I've definitely played with this idea as well like you know why would i do this to myself because you know you know your your whole year can be determined by results uh of your 5k 10k plus uh, games and you can be printing in your uh, in your normal games and i lose it all back in the in the 10ks uh that's not a lot of fun so um, yeah that, that's something that i still i'm not 100 sure what my approach will be regarding that i think yeah the more i study i feel like i i really i'm pretty sure that i i beat them um so i kind of want to keep playing them especially if it's not uh an issue bankroll wise then why would you skip plus ev games uh but i think it's it's not even like a like a monetary thing it's more of like uh starting to doubt yourself you know like i should be able to beat these fields but then you know i i've gone for months without 
uh, cashing any 10k like you know what's going on am i am i really beating these or am i just overestimating overestimating my own ability and that's something that uh yeah i, st I still struggle a little bit with but uh, obviously i have to try and uh yeah this is kind of like a monkey that i got off my back in, in that, that regard a little bit yeah, I think this is an interesting topic to touch on because I'm sure a lot of players can relate to this, whether it's playing higher stakes, like moving up stakes and cash games, playing some high MTTs, which are the top end of your bankroll range, and then running bad in the, like in a small sample. Very common for players to have self-doubt and start worrying about, can I beat these games? And for you, you've got like high volume, you've got a good bankroll, you've got good win rates in all your other games. So a lot of the kind of data points tell you nothing to worry about. But when you keep playing these games, you keep losing. Now three months go by, four months, five months. Sometimes cash game players are shot taking a stake and they'll move back down a stake. And they've shot soaked five or six times and each time they've lost five, six buy-ins, and it's starting to build a little bit of a sample, and it's starting to niggle at the back of the mind going, can I beat these games? Then there's the logical voice going, well, I should be able to, but what was if I can't? So uh, I'm really interested to know like how uh, you deal with that in terms of like, what do you do? Like, do you uh, study harder? What's your kind of approach to uh, almost like giving yourself more confidence, overriding that self-doubt, and allowing yourself to be logical in that moment to uh, keep moving forward, if that's what you want to do and keep playing those games? Yeah, it definitely motivates me uh, to to uh, put in a lot more study hours. So uh, I guess that regard, it's also a good thing. Um, yeah, what else do I do? I, I, I guess I try to, uh, I mean, I try to analyze these fields a little bit and uh, yeah, for example, it's like a, there's a weekly 10K MGG and, and if you look at this field, it's really not that much worse than like any other, let's say random 1K or whatever uh, on, on any different side. Like this, this field is pretty good. Uh, so if I know I beat these one case for a certain amount, because I have a huge sample in these, like I can be pretty sure that I beat them for a certain amount. Uh, I should be able to also beat this 10K, right? But because you only play such a tiny sample, like it can take a long time. And, and to be fair, I've also been close to like huge scores many times uh, in, in like big big field 10Ks, for example, or 5Ks, like main events, uh, scoop, whatever, this kind of stuff, final two tables, and just not winning that last flip to, to make it to the top five or something. Um, and yeah, I mean, if, if I think back about those moments, like that makes you realize how big this variance really is, because if I won five flips more, I could have won like an extra two million or something, I guess, easily. And I mean, it's it's really, yeah, it's kind of demotivating to think about that kind of stuff. But then you also have to think like, obviously, I've won these flips in other spots, you know, but I but you don't think about those because when you win, it's you, you kind of assume it's, it's, it's a given, right? Like the fact that I won like probably... 25 flips uh, on my way to the Sunday Million Bank. That's not something you consciously think about too often. But yeah, if you, if you start thinking about okay, I'm losing in these 10k's, like what's you know what what's going wrong? It also goes right very often, just not in that spot. And I mean, uh, in terms of like, if, I think if I would uh, plot all my high stakes results now, including like uh, Trident stuff and everything, uh, I, I'm doing very well, of course. But yeah, that switched around from like not doing so hard, maybe being like break even or slightly losing to, you know, uh, being uh, up a decent amount after like two tourneys uh, in Triton. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the variance is insane, but you also kind of have to embrace it. And this is also why these games run like, like no one um, really thinks who, uh, no one really knows who, who the biggest winners are. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, um, yeah, doubt about that. And that's also why these games keep running and people keep firing them because there's also a lot of people playing them who, are probably losers who think they are winners. So yeah, it's a, it's a good thing for in, in the long run for entities, I think, but it's also, it can also uh, put some doubt into your mind sometimes. Yeah, I think your story shows the importance of continually showing up, always putting yourself in the games, obviously with the right rationale, with the right 
bankroll management, the right skill sets. You're obviously studying a lot to make sure your game's good. You are often, you're checking the game quality to make sure they're similar to the other games you're playing. But then you are showing up. You're putting yourself in there. Even the trading stops, you're there. Uh, so like you're in these games for many, many years. I think you said 15 years you've been playing overall. That's a long time to be putting yourself in big games to get like a big score. So I think it's, a, it's always a reminder that like showing up is like most of the job sometimes to uh, be there. And that's sometimes the hardest part for poker players. Like the ability to override the self-doubt, override the kind of the uncertainty of playing these games, especially when the, uh, the results aren't coming in. But for you, you've managed to find a way to continually push through that, which is, yeah, a credit to you. So yeah. I'm interested now to know, sorry, no, yeah, I was going to say, like, I think the, the showing up part, is, it, this is definitely a skill that is uh, very underrated, uh, I think, in general in poker, um, but especially in entities because the, the variance is so brutal. Uh, and I've, I've always been very good at that. And I think also because I like if you really enjoy the game that you're playing, it's just so much easier to show up. I think there's there's probably also a big subset of poker players who who are more in it for the money and not not especially because they, they enjoy playing that much anymore, maybe like. I think there's a lot of people who still play who, who kind of lost the enjoyment in, in playing maybe. And I think if you still have this, uh, yeah, then it's way easier to, to keep showing up. But yeah, I, I definitely also, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at, um, at even during rough stretches, just keep showing up and just keep doing what I'm doing. And obviously I play so long uh, and I've been through these kind of stretches many times before that I, I know at some point it's going to turn around again. So having that experience is, especially nowadays, is very important. But I think I've had this ability from the start and it's uh, yeah i'm not sure if it's necessarily a mindset thing i think it's yeah i think just enjoying what you're doing so even if it's not if the results are not really going your way i would still enjoy it so um yeah i, I think that really helps yeah, I think the enjoyment factor is huge in terms of being able to show up if not you're relying on discipline willpower making yourself push through for you it feels like you just wanted to be there you just enjoyed exactly. the game from the start so, so I'm curious, I think this is going to tie in with, with this already, but I'm, I'm thinking about if I was you, like you've won this Sunday mail, so you've got like 100k plus in your, in your bankroll, like just recently you've won the Titan, the Triton series, so you've got like a big big bankroll increase there. It feels like for you, like these things don't really change the trajectory so much for you. It feels like it's just like, ah, business as usual, back to work tomorrow. So uh, I wonder like how your goals have changed. Let's say like, let's talk about the initial uh, kind of thinking the this Sunday million. How did that change your kind of goals and pocket why you play? Because I think a lot of players will be playing to have achievements, to hit financial goals, to move up stakes. And when those are achieved, they almost need to like stop and then go, well, what's next? For you, it feels like because you maybe enjoy the game so much, you just keep going with, going with it. So first of all, when you won the, the try, sorry, the Sunday million, any shifts that happen in terms of the goals you were setting yourself in poker then? Yeah, so back then, I think uh, the main goal was like, just to to get out of it what what's possibly in it so like i guess mostly that meant back then uh, financially uh and and it was i think back then not necessarily about you know achievement to the outside world or or being the best or something like that but more like okay wow this is actually i i if i go for this i could i could probably in the next few years and, and even back then there was talk about like poker dying uh, online at least uh, so this 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 talk has been around uh, since forever and i i remember even back then i thought like okay i mean i might only be able to do this you know for the next few years um so i might as well try to get out of it what's in there and, and you know like uh, really go for it and i you know if the ev is a couple hundred k or something or whatever i had in mind back then uh, it's obviously worth it worth it to go for that right so i think that's mainly uh, what motivated me back then i think over the years it really shifted uh, i mean it, because I've always been very competitive and, and especially like wanting to be beat other people at a game like this is something that I've always enjoyed and I'm really a terrible winner also if, if you lose a game 
to me, I will really rub it in. Like I'm, I'm a terrible, ter terrible person to lose a game to. But um, yeah, so this this is this has always given me a lot of enjoyment to like try to beat other people at a strategy game. So I think uh, yeah, like not not losing to other people or or beating other people, trying to 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 move up in the. I guess I'm not even sure if you would call the power rankings or something like that. But you know, trying to be on the on top that's that's i guess what motivated me later on a lot and i guess um more recently um i like i never really had monetary goals but i guess uh if i would have to set a goal i i, I would really like to be able to after my poker career say okay if i don't want to i never have to work another day in my life um so that would be something that I, I guess I have as sort of like some somewhat of a loose goal because I didn't really put it like a very specific dollar amount on that or euro amount, I guess in my case, but um, I have like roughly something in mind that I would like to achieve financially. And at that point, I would think like now I'm completely independent um, or at least I can live, you know, the kind of fun lifestyle that I have in mind and not, not have to work anymore and just live off of passive uh, income uh, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all that, that number also changes. Uh, I mean, if, if, if inflation, uh, stays at 15% or something, uh, I, I might have to adjust that number a little bit, but, uh, yeah, this is something that I have in the back of my mind, but it's not like a huge goal for me. And also I'm, I'm a little bit more, uh, optimistic about, um, like how long I can, can play this game, because I think like these talks about online dying have been around for so long and it, it didn't happen yet. Um, and then there's always live poker as well, even though I think the EV of, of playing a full live schedule is a little bit worse. I think if I can play the higher stakes and, and obviously I would have to sell a little bit, but like if you can keep very good pieces of yourself, um, I think the EV of, of that is still pretty good as well. And that will be around for, I think, I mean, uh, probably forever. Like uh, there's no reason why live games would die necessarily. So um, uh, yeah, I think, uh, in that that regard, uh, I think my my future EV is pretty good, and I I will try to get out out of it. Uh, what's in there, basically, that's that's mm -hmm. what I'm I love that. Yeah, reminds me of uh, we had Lucky Chibi on recently, and we asked him why he still plays poker, and he said it's the best game I've ever found. And it sounds like similar for you. It's a, a game you enjoy. You like the competition elements. You like beating your opponents. You like the progression, the financial opportunities, the achievements. One thing I want to touch on is when you're competitive. I think it's always interesting to know. Uh, how that works in reverse. So you mentioned like when you win, you like to rub in people's faces. What happens when you lose? Are you a sole loser? Do you have any troubles when things aren't going your way? Have you had any, anything uh, come up? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a very, very sore loser. I, I'll just be honest about that. I'm, I, I'm as bad as, as I am at winning, I'm also very bad at losing. And uh, in both scenarios, I'm completely insufferable. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, very bad loser. But I think this is, I mean, for me, I think it's an asset, even though, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I get tilted sometimes, but not not to the point where I think it affects me too much, or I like it at least it doesn't affect the way I play. And I think also I'm very good at just like venting a little bit and then you know shaking it off. Like it, like I, I don't I never have tilt for an extended amount of time. Like it's just a very short moment and then uh, then it passes basically. Um, mm -hmm. And and it's a good motivator. I think really uh, like if I'm in a losing stretch and I think like yeah these these people that I see winning are they're like half brain dead like well, why am I losing to these guys there's a little bit of entitlement in, in, in that of course but there's also it, it helps me helps me uh, to stay motivated and like to really try and show up every day and, and, and beat these guys because I should be able to you know like and, and I think this kind of like 
being a sore loser and, and this entitlement kind of helps me keep going as well. Like it's kind of like a fuel uh, for, for the fire, the, the poker fire within me, so to speak. Yeah, literally what I wrote down just a second ago, it seems like you use it as fuel to keep showing up and keep coming back. And two things, you're able to shake it off quite quickly in terms of the frustration, maybe a, a few of the kind of lingering negative thoughts. And then quickly, it's just a fuel source to right? back at it. I'm beating these guys tomorrow. I'm going to be there. And this probably drives into your consistency. You want to show up, probably shows why you're always there. When, when I lose it, like if you win, you like winning, but if you lose, it's like, right, I'm, I'm definitely there, which has probably led to your consistently high volume throughout the years, which is, yeah, obviously been a, a good skill of yours. Yeah. Really, really good. And it does that kind of answers through the questions I had in my mind coming into this conversation. because I was thinking, how have you as an MC player not had many like kind of mindset hiccups, but if you're using like the kind of downside downsides or downswings as um, fuel to kind of keep you going. You've already got your bankroll in a very good position and you're loving the game that you're playing. It's like, all right, we've got a pretty good formula here to just show up, play poker without too much of the, the, the issues coming up. So yeah, really good. Uh, uh, yeah, Run it for yourself. It, it's, it's probably not always fun for people around me or like, I, I, like sometimes I go on a rant, like how, how am I losing to these guys? You know, like this kind of stuff, like really like get it out of my system. And then there's, there's someone who's catching catching this, right? And then, and then the next day I show up again and play again. And it's obviously, I, I you know, um, then it goes better or, you know, whatever. So it, it's uh, it's probably not always uh, good for my environment, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the way I deal with things. And there might be a better way out there. Like, um, certainly I think I, I could make some improvements on this, but on the other hand, like it's, it's worked for me for many, many years. Um, so maybe it's also not necessary to make any changes regarding that. Yeah, I agree. I think behaviors can be either adaptive or maladaptive. Adaptive meaning they serve a purpose and they they do get get the result you want. So for you, you want to get out of your system quickly when you've lost and then get back to it quickly. You do that with I mean, I mean shout in, punch at the table. It doesn't really matter because it doesn't it, 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 it's not that bad. It's mostly just like normally like uh, you know, ranting about other racks or something like this. Not it, it's not like I I'm punching here uh, holes in the wall or something like this. <laughs> nothing nothing that bad. So I, I guess in in in, a, in some sense I'm, I'm definitely uh, level-headed enough where I, yeah, like there's levels to tilt and I, I never get to that level of tilt let's say yeah it's also short-lived by the sounds of it like quite quick over yeah, you're not ruining it for hours. Yeah, yeah very quick because I, i've definitely also heard from others that that they they really go through like like phases or periods like of longer longer tilt uh or, or especially entitlement i guess but yeah for me it's uh if if i just um rent a little bit or like uh yeah get it get it out of my system it's it's gone and I, I'll be able to move on uh, pretty quickly. So let's say it's a 10K before you've won the Trident recently and you're running deep and this looks like a tournament that you're going to potentially get a big score. You're chip leader, getting towards the final table and then you just bust out and you don't get it, don't get the big score you wanted. Hopes were high, entitlement was starting to build. You were like, oh, finally, I'm going to get a good result at this high buy-in. How quick would that be for you to be like, oh, well, it's just whatever and get over it? Half an hour, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, we it. no it's really yeah it's, it's, it sounds funny maybe but it's really like i, I would definitely I, because uh, i mean this literal scenario happens to me plenty of times or i mean i, I don't want to exaggerate but like a few times at least um and uh yeah i mean i could even go back and, and read, read the chats to whatever my, my study buddies or friends of poker and, and i've definitely rented like oh how can i how can i go deep in this 10k again and just get wrecked in the end by by this uh, lucky guy or something and but then yeah, like half an hour later, I'm like, okay, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll uh, you know run some spots and see see if I did anything wrong. And uh, yeah, it motivates me. Uh, I just have to have to like um, yeah get it get it out out of my system. And then then really uh, after that, I, I I calm down and, and I'm like, okay, let's 
let's see what I can do better for the next one. And uh, let's let's study up and let's try to let let's try to beat these fuckers because that's that's kind of yeah I, I, that's important for me. Like I I, uh, I don't want to lose to these guys and I I don't think I should. So there's some way I, I'm gonna find a way to 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 not lose to them and uh, yeah it might take some time but um, that that's that's kind of what keeps keeps me coming back. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good formula. I think it's an element of acceptance. You accept that it's happened. Obviously, a little bit of ranting in the short term. You let it go. It's done. No no point ruminating over it. And then you just move on. And I think often players get caught because they end up in a story narrative. They just replaying the story of, oh, I ran bad and that situation happened. They'll tell one friend and another friend. They'll wake up the next day and they'll just constantly going over the story narrative. Where for you, you just almost like get out quickly, forget about it. And the, the story's not repeating. It's now it's like, all right, back to work. I'm going to beat these guys. This is not happening again. So it's a, yeah, really, really good like in a system of just let things go and then get back to work in terms of things you do control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's how I do it, basically. Yeah. How about for yourself, Rene? I know you're a competitive guy. How do things go when you're not getting your own way? I uh, I feel very similar to Jens. Uh, to Jens, I have the same. Like, if for example, you know, I'm losing, and I review, and I saw that I, for example, made a lot of mistakes, and I see a lot of room for improvement, then this actually motivates me. It's like, oh well, well actually, it's good that I see this now, you know, and I'm motivated to implement these these points that I can improve on and if it's the opposite like fuck I'm doing everything right okay this is just a matter of time then I also want to go back so yeah regardless you you're you're excited to go start playing poker again so that's I think uh, I think a very important I think for me the main thing because I would say volume has been usually uh um I would say reflecting on my whole career probably volume has always been the biggest league which is for me was always mental game related which for me actually came more to like a fear of failure type of thing. So I would, for example, if I would be winning, I would close close a session early because I want to get that winning feeling, right? That was very important for me. Um, or I would, for example, try to make sure everything is perfect before I start playing in order to make the chances of failing smaller. Okay, so these are like, for, for example, certain things that I had to work on in order to make sure that I can actually put the volume in. Because as, as Jan's already said, the, putting the volume in is very important. So that's for me personally has definitely been something that I've improved now that I said play. Or at least this year, since I can call myself a professional poker player again. I, I experienced something similar as Jans. Like the years before, I've been mainly focusing on coaching. Then you know, uh we, we have uh I tr I tried to start uh, the poker ambition uh coaching business. Did maybe not end, you know. Or at least it's it's looking a bit different now, right? Only mechanics of poker coaching program. Me and Adam, shout out to the program. Um, and now this year, I'm more of a pro again. If people ask me more in the past, I would say, yeah, I'm a bit of everything. But this year, I feel more like a professional. So also my volume, for example, I've already played more, I think, than whole last year combined. And what what are we? Beginning of April now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is definitely that has definitely changed a lot. But I can I can I can completely relate to with with regards to volume. Like I, I also don't really understand how how people do it that they don't play a lot of volume because, for example, I I've made this mistake in the past where I, uh, before like a big online series, let's say Scoop, right, which is like mm -hmm. three weeks or something, or uh, nowadays even longer, like full uh, grind mode, and I would take two weeks off, right, like. You know, let's let's rest up, like uh, take my mind off off of work a little bit, and then I would start. Like the first Sunday would be a big, big, uh, like high buying day, and I would be completely rusty. And I, I don't even if I play, don't play for a week, and I played for like 15 years straight, right? If I don't play for a week, I feel completely rusty. I, even like the the simplest preflop spots, and I think of, I mean, 
I will still be plus EV and I will still play at a decent level. But I, I try to strive for perfection, especially in like the simple spots, because it's so easy to do, right? Like, or, or it's so easy to, uh, yeah, to, to reach per perfection in these spots uh, that are completely solved. And yeah, like I, get, I, I really notice that I get rusty. So I, I always think about like, for example, these, these people that only play live and they go from, from, from livestock to livestock, they have extended periods of not playing. I, I have no idea how they, how they stay sharp or yeah, I, I guess maybe, maybe it's just my, uh, maybe it's just something that I experienced and not everyone has this, that, it, that they feel rusty after a little while, but I, I definitely, uh, it's a big thing for me that I, I need this volume to, to stay at a certain level. And I think I, or at least for my, for the standards that I set for myself, I, I feel there's like, there's like quite a, quite a big drop off if I, if I don't play uh, volume. I can uh, I can relate to that. I feel like a lot of players that I speak to experience the same. A very common one is, oh, I went on a two-week holiday or something, come back. And it's like, okay, what was the sequence again? Does a set beat to pair? What is higher, flush or straight? It's, you know, it's yeah. maybe not that bad, but you know, it's, 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 it's very similar. And then I remember also when I was playing like uh, really full time at the top of my game, I, I was so not looking forward to a holiday because I would know like, okay, usually already the week before a holiday when you're playing, it's like, well, I'm going on holiday next week. So it almost feels like that week sort of, I don't know, it's really weird. It's almost like it doesn't count because it's going to quit. I'm not really working on something. So that week is already a bit meh. Let's say you go on holiday one, two, three weeks. So that's already a month gone. And then you come back and the first week you're super rusty. You know, you need to get back in the flow. So a two week holiday can easily cost me like one and a half month in EV or something. So well, I was looking at holidays. I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe not a good idea actually to take holiday. And I, like you said, like I often didn't really feel like I needed one. So, uh, but yeah, yeah I, think, I, think I, I mean, you're in a relationship. I'm sure your girlfriend might disagree on this one. My wife strongly disagreed on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think if you uh, if you really enjoy what you do, you you don't need to escape that basically, right? Like uh, for some people, maybe who don't really in, in, enjoy their day-to-day -day job or something a holiday really feels like an escape and I, I think we both don't have that which is i think a very positive thing because you can obviously still on holidays because it's enjoyable but not because you need one or i mean i even spoke to people who have like high high stress jobs and uh, i've heard about this thing where even they need a few days before they go on holiday to to really calm down because they if they would go on holiday immediately after you know let's say friday last work day they'd leave on saturday they couldn't enjoy the first few days because they're still in their mind so stressed about their uh about their job apparently which is something that's completely foreign to me i cannot even imagine this being a thing uh and and that's why they leave a few days later because they they wouldn't enjoy the first few days anyway and this is i mean like I don't know how these people don't just quit on the spot. I guess I mean there's obviously a lot of incentives involved, but and, and not yeah they, like I, I I know why, but uh, yeah like I I couldn't I couldn't imagine having to deal with that, and and that's why I think I'm super super lucky to to have found poker and and have found something that I really enjoy that I'm somewhat good at, and uh, I can I make a comfortable living with it. Like it's it's obviously uh, insane, and and it's good to to realize sometimes. Yeah, the quote that comes to mind is "Create a life so awesome a holiday sounds boring." That's right. a quote yeah, that yeah. I heard. That's kind of what, what 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 you're referring to. But I think it's like societal standard, right? Friday is the day to celebrate because it's weekend and Monday is doom day. Well, yeah. I, I I often actually have sort of the opposite. I sometimes crave towards like Monday, which is like start of the week. Things are in my control. You know, I'm back into my routine. That's where I feel feel nicest. And when it's like Sunday and I have nothing planned, it's almost like a bit. Wait, there's nothing. 
what then what do we do now you know like you, you don't really feel and flow it's funny that you say that because it actually kind of is like that for me that where friday is like the celebration that, but it's only because sunday is, is the biggest day for entities so like you never party on saturday right because i mean yeah if you if you throw away your highest tv day of the week it, it's kind of done so you end up celebrating on friday usually if you if you want to party you do it on friday and then monday is kind of like the hangover day because the sunday grind is on average goes way later than than a weekday grind uh so yeah that's when i get the worst sleep uh probably usually if you if you have a deep run or, or you win something there's some adrenaline in your system and I, I definitely noticed that i sleep worse after something like that for example so monday is usually actually kind of my uh, yeah like kind of hang, hangover day not not alcohol wise but like yeah like a, a work hangover kind of uh so i always i, I never plan anything on, on on mondays i always tell my girlfriend like leave me alone on monday like <laughs> don't uh don't bother me on monday like i, I just want to chill uh, it's also usually not a day that I study a lot, for example. So it, it's funny that that in that regard, it kind of matches like a normal work week, kind of uh, uh, like a regular job kind of thing. But I guess for cash, it's it's obviously completely different. Then. For all the poker players listening out there partying on Saturday, even though Sunday is the biggest day, you're a poker player, but not a professional poker player, as you pointed that, this that, out. Because if you're a professional, that's not something that you do. But that's that's definitely one of the things. That's a very good example of of the the, the stuff that I I quit doing after making the shift to to being a professional. And probably not completely because. And I, I mean, if you're 22, you can you can you know uh, drink a lot of uh, stuff the night before, wake up and at nine uh, at nine in the morning, and just function pretty well, right? But if you're 30, this is definitely not something that uh, I mean I mean not something that I could could do. And I'm 32 and. If I if I drink on Saturday, I, I I will not have a good Sunday session. So yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff that yeah, like that's a little bit of professionalism, and that's not even. I mean, I you could also say like that's that's to be expected from anyone that plays for decent stakes. But uh, I think definitely something that that a lot of people maybe do wrong. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about these are like your views of being a professional, right? I think earlier you you, you named responsibilities. These are certain responsibilities that come with the profession of being a professional poker player. Remember a little while ago, I think it was Ben CB that put out a tweet about like sacrifices made for oh, his career. Do, do you remember that? What's what's like your views on that? Because sacrifices could be maybe like a lot of the things that some people call sacrifice. You just see as listen, this is this is your responsibility as a professional poker player. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading a little bit. Uh, I saw also um, Henrik Hackman's uh, response, who was on the other, completely other side of uh, the spectrum. Uh, I would say I, I lean a little bit towards uh, uh, Henrik's uh, stand on that. But um, I, like the thing with Ben Sabi's advice, I think it's very good advice for a very small amount of people. And then for a lot of people, it's it's terrible advice. And so you cannot really say it's, it's bad advice per se, but like I think for a lot of people, it really is not a good idea to like, be a slave to the to your 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 poker playing uh, thing. Like only playing, only studying, never partying. This is like spending your twenties like that. It's just I mean you will regret regret that the rest of your life. I think. Um, so I would not recommend doing that. I think for some people who really go overboard like partying and you know like who really deal with that side of things not very well, it could be great advice because that could be the best thing that they could do. Right, completely focus on one thing. But I think. In general, that should not be the way you should strive to live your life. At least for me, this yeah, this would take a lot of enjoyment out of my life. And and, and I think in that way, it's it's not it's not such great advice. But I I do think like if your only goal in life 
is to succeed at poker, then it's sure do do it that way. But I think at least for me, my goal is to just be as happy as I can be. And that would also involve doing some fun stuff. And that it doesn't involve just sitting in front of my computer 24 seven, grinding it out and uh, and studying. Uh, like this is not not what I view as a fun life. As much as I love playing poker and studying poker, I cannot do it 24 seven. I, I need to do some fun stuff in my life as well. So I would say um, I, I don't think it's it's great advice for most people. Yeah, and I also think personally downtime is necessary. I mean, Mr. Performance yeah. Adam, I'm sure, you know, there's only so much in your brain that at some point your brain is like, okay, now we need a break because I need to process everything. If you just keep on going, I think it never really, you know, is that correct? You understand what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, downtime's needed almost like it's the recovery process. Like say you go to the gym, people think you get stronger in the gym. It's actually after the gym where you go to sleep, where all the recovery's done, all the growth. Same with the learning. Learning like kind of all the signups in your brain get triggered. But actually the learning occurs when you're in the downtime, when you're recovering, you're sleeping, you're, you've got time for those connections to form. So yeah, downtime's definitely needed for, for, le for learning. Yeah, then obviously don't, if you then, for example, like partying as like your relaxation or your downtime, don't do that on a Saturday. If Sunday is your big grind, that's obviously professionalism but i think a lot of the things that come with professionalism for example i personally quit drinking because i was like okay i'm trying to become the best poker player i need my brain so why would i drink it just made no sense to me and then people say oh it's such a big sacrifice but i personally didn't really see it as a sacrifice i didn't really see it as a sacrifice but just like yeah this is in line with my goals so it doesn't really bother me that you know now i don't drink for example yeah i think i think if you uh drink like if you don't miss it then there's no not really a reason to do it uh, I think if you like, I, I uh, did uh, dry January uh, this year, for example. I could definitely notice. Um, I'm not a huge drinker, but I, like, I think I would. I, I drink. I think I drink it a little bit more than the average person. I would say, and I could definitely notice a difference, like in terms of fitness or like. Yeah, I'm not even sure if, it, if my mind was clearer, but like your sleep, sleep improves, for example, a lot. Like this kind of stuff, it it would definitely be helpful for me long term to do this for my book career for for basically for a lot of things like productivity in general but then on the other hand i i definitely also missed it in a social setting i like i went out for dinner a few times and then everyone's drinking and you're not drinking and it's still enjoyable but like it would i i feel like it would definitely be more enjoyable but it, it made me more conscious about like you know capping your your drinking at a certain amount and not going overboard with it because it's very easy to just drink way too much and just picking your spots basically right like a nice dinner with friends then you drink a few glasses of wine uh but you know don't drink casually so often like this kind of thing it makes make, made me uh, a lot more conscious in that, in that regard um but yeah i think if, if it's not a sacrifice for you then why, why would you keep doing it right yeah and like in general oh uh now playing more or studying more yeah if it's something that you enjoy i don't think the word sacrifice is yeah, if for some for some person it might be a sacrifice and for the other one not. And I agree, you cannot make too much sacrifices because then poker playing becomes sort of in the way of actually the life that you want to live. And I don't think that's sustainable either. So I agree, like you, you have to find probably a sweet spot in the middle. I like the picker spots, for example, then if I would go on a holiday or like a weekend away or something, sure, I'll, I'll, ha I'll have a drink. But I do also know like just... Especially, I mean, you're, you're from Groningen. That, that's where they drink a lot. But in general, I think Dutch people, they drink that's a lot. That's where I learned, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but especially in Groningen, the more north you go, oh, they, they start drinking. But they, like you probably then also, or at least I noticed that nowadays, if I would, for example, go back to my hometown, the amount of alcohol people drink. And it's like, 
picking your spots. I'm like, yeah, I'm just not going to stand here randomly, you know, drink 15 beers. It's not really in line. But if I go for a nice dinner and there's a nice wine that I can appreciate, then I'll sure I'll have a nice wine. So I'm way more of a appreciative drinker now, but I would rarely drink more than two glasses. And to be fair, two glasses nowadays already gets me drunk. Yeah, I think anyway. it's also just a natural way of maturing, right? Like, especially if you, if you're a uni student, like drinking is just kind of part of the 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 yeah the the culture, and then I mean that that's that kind of it it can kind of stay with you. I think in the years after you're studying, but then at some point it starts to take more and more physical toll, and like you you just are interested in different things in life, and I think it's also kind of a, a natural way of maturing. I think a lot of people go through that kind of process. I feel like yeah i think in general you know let's say for example you start to you, you start to eat a bit healthier you start to work out you suddenly feel better right you're sleeping better you're performing better then at some point it's no longer a sacrifice it's like wh why do i want to go back to feeling more shitty can, can someone explain this to me you know actually uh, with, uh, with regards to that um i, I because i watched ben heath uh, on your uh, on your mm -hmm. podcast and uh, he said this thing where he was like i um on life trips i won't drink until the last day so like basically until the last time is played i guess for him mm -hmm. uh and so i went to triton because i watched this before uh tried in vietnam and i was like fuck it i'm gonna do this right like this seems like a pretty gto approach and uh also like uh, what you said about like um ept stuff for example like it's it's a little bit feels a little bit more also as a vacation so you, you would definitely like in the middle of the, the trip just go for a random night of partying or something uh, and I was like, okay, if I go, if I, you know, I sell some action here, I, I play very high stakes tournaments against very good players. Like I just, that's, that seems like a pretty um, easy step to take to increase your EV, right? Uh, so I, I decided to, uh, together with uh, Jesper, who I, who I went with there, to not drink until the last day. And obviously I went, <laughs> won the 30K and uh, I, I, I failed in this task, but I think, I mean, uh, we didn't uh, have the stipulation, but I think it, it's it's reasonable to have have a beer after you uh, after you win uh, nine okay. So uh, I didn't I didn't uh, make it the whole way, but I I didn't drink during play or anything like this. Like I, I had one or two beers, I think, after this win, uh, jumped into the next tournament, and uh, and then the last night we had a we had a good party night after um, after all the tournaments were done. But uh, I think uh, yeah, th this is definitely the kind of um, yeah, like it's just a part of being a professional, right? And it, it definitely helps you, I think. Yeah, and then indeed, again, pick your spots. And then in the end of the series, you know, by all means, do celebrate because you also don't want to become a robot, be like, no, no, focused always, blah, blah, blah. Because then, then like, then, then where's the fun part? Again, you know, we have to find a, a, sort, a yeah, know, sort of the, sweet spot. There's this thing about like, uh, what is it, living, working to live or living to work or something mm -hmm. like, you know, like, I think, and I've, 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 thought about this quite a bit like i don't want to be the guy who just only grinds with the goal to have uh you know a nice life after i'm done like i, I think it, it should you should enjoy yourself during uh, this process like I, I don't think working very very hard and then trying to enjoy your life after you're 60 like the way basically society is set up right like uh you retire and then if you're lucky you have another 20 years or something you're not in a good physical shape usually uh, at that age. Like I, I think the way this is set up is 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 pretty bad. I, I would think it's probably a lot better to just keep working longer and work less hours a week or something and have a little bit more uh, enjoyable life. So I don't know. I, I feel like uh, if we're uh, like in a hundred years, society will not work in that way anymore. And, and yeah, I, I'm not really sure why we uh, 
set it up that way, but um, I don't think it uh, it works very well for for most people. I think this is what uh, Bill Perkins' book is about, right? Like die with zero, where he's like, yeah, you shouldn't wait until your pensionites because then basically your health is no longer. Basically, I, th I think it's more about uh, at certain stage of your life because of your, for example, physical health, you can do certain things that you yeah. might not be able to do again when you're 70, 60 or something. So uh, at every age span, you should take full advantage of what you can experience only in that age span. And then basically uh, die uh, with zero. When you die, you should have zero. Right, yeah, I haven't read this book. I, I always assumed it was just about spending your money uh, before. Because I mean, obviously, especially back in the day, like I, I remember like my grandparents, for example, like like everyone would always be saving their money, right? They, you cannot spend anything. You have to save it and send, send your children children off in relative wealth or something and i mean this is just complete bullshit in my opinion you don't have to sacrifice your your whole life to work i mean it's obviously nice to send off your kids in the right way but they should also be self-sustaining at some point yeah you should give them a head start maybe you know and yeah, but sure. basically i think more your job is to educate them in a way so they can accumulate wealth themselves why give your wealth to them i think actually that's probably the worst thing you can do because there's no more necessity for them to develop exactly and and uh and i think also like that yeah you're just kind of like cheating yourself out of a nice life by not spending whatever you work very hard for to achieve so i i always assumed the book was about that but i guess it's more about um i, I haven't read it but uh... yeah it, it, it's it's more about realizing what you can do or at least that might take take away like realizing what you can do at a certain moment and taking them full advantage instead of waiting till your pension to be like, oh, now I'm going to do everything. But in the meantime, you know, you're old, you're, you have certain diseases or you have certain pains yeah. from your work, you're, you're stressed out. You know, that's that's and indeed, I agree. It's not really the life that you want to live. Yeah. And I think a lot of people kind of fall for that trap of uh, working very hard when they're like young slash middle aged. And then, you know, at some point they realize like, fuck, I've wasted a lot of time just, you know, working and, and, and kind of wasting my, my good years, so to speak. So I, I try to really consciously not fall for that trap. And I think if you enjoy what you do, it's, it's less of a trap because most of your time is spent on something that you already enjoy. So it's not really a waste or anything like that. But uh, I think a lot of people fall into this trap, especially people with, who have regular jobs. And uh, in poker, it's probably not that common, I guess. I, uh, I want to touch on some points that you, uh, you talked about with Adam. We were talking about... Um, um, like, for example, you, you talked about it very easily. Yeah, you know, it's just a matter of getting to the last few tables and then winning a couple flips. Obviously, again, it's like, I think the skill the skill is in getting yourself in a position where you're in the position to win the flip for the final table, right? That's kind of the skill element for the, for the audience. Uh, and again, like the skill element with all the variants involved is then handling the variance. That then becomes the skill. Handling the variance in a correct way that it doesn't influence you, so you don't have to take a break. A break, so you can actually put your volume in like like you do. That's that then becomes the skill. So I thought that was an interesting point to touch on. And I also wanted to ask because you keep on mentioning enjoyment of the game. What? How do you make sure that poker remains fun for you to play? Um, yeah, well, there's like there's always uh, things to uh, to work towards, like. I, th I think if you look at um, what level the the best possible tournament player would be on and how far I, I, anyone is removed from that, and uh, me too, of course, like there's such a big gap uh, to, to fill still. And obviously you work to, towards that point incrementally and, and it's it's a utopia. You can never reach, like you can never be this perfect bot who plays perfect. And there's so many factors, like no one even knows what it would look like, but 
um, yeah, that, that's that's definitely what motivates me, like incrementally trying to get to a higher level. And then obviously, um, yeah, I, I, you should always strive, in my opinion, to be the top dog in, in any tournament. And uh, I think currently that's not the case. So it's definitely, I, I don't know what it would be like to be the top dog. I guess it's usually not very clear who is the top dog, but like, yeah, I, I guess working towards uh, trying to be the, the very best, uh, that's that's something that I, I get a lot of motivation out of. Um, yeah, for sure. For, in day-to-day, -day basically. I can strongly relate to this. For example, if you would tell me, okay, you're not allowed to do any strategy for three months, but you do have to grind. And, you know, you cannot then use the grind as sort of strategy. Then it becomes, then you're just going through the motion and then I would burn out very quickly. But I need like strategical impulses so that when I go into a session, there's like certain spots that I'm curious for. That kind of fusion you know that spot comes up that you study it's like hey this is indeed that situation oh i used to play this way but now i understand this way is way better and then especially if you see it work and you got him it's like that that ta, ta, that study hours paying off yeah there's a lot of enjoyment in, the, in this in this process of like making these small changes experiencing them in game and 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 uh, noticing like oh i now have a better understanding of the spot uh yeah like these it, it's very small things like this that that really make it more enjoyable i think and i i think if there's no process of of improvement like you said like if you if i was forced to just show up play a certain schedule this would start to feel like work and i mean yeah i guess i i, I wouldn't like working that way like it, it would feel like a nine-to-five job and, and I, I i wouldn't enjoy that uh at all i think I get a flashback towards a session that I once did with Elliot Rowe. We're talking 2016, 17, very long time ago when Elliot Rowe was still affordable. Uh, yeah. So was he ever? <laughs> he 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 made a he made me visualize. I remember two grinds. I, I don't recall what the topic was. Probably it was around volume surprise price, as I already pointed out, it was definitely a leak. And then I said, yeah, you know, I should just play more tables, grind more. And then I think he made me visualize both grinds. And one was playing more volume, like more volume, just grinding, you know, not making it too difficult for himself, just executing a strategy. And the other one was more taking more time to study, trying to become a better player, which often players would say that's harder. And then I, he made me sort of visualize both grinds. And I very quickly came to the conclusion that just grinding it out is a way harder grind than just doing a lot of strategy and trying to actually become a very good player, because that's something that you get a lot of fuel back. You get very motivated. So it fuels you. And the other one only would cost me energy. And I would there would never be anything in my day-to-day -day grind that would give me energy back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very important. And um, yeah, ideally, like in a real world, jobs would be designed in a way where everyone would have a job where they get this kind of fulfillment uh, from it. But I think sadly, like a lot of people are stuck in, in situations where they don't have this uh this kind of loop and, and it's more like only giving and not not getting back from it and and that's i think this is why people get burnouts i think like yeah exactly because it's not like it's not like necessarily the hours that you work i think burnout works more i've listened to the podcast about this and they they're explaining it more in terms of indeed energy like how much energy does something cost you and how much do you get back from it and basically when that is off balance that's when you burn out yeah yeah i think so too so for, for a lot of players listening that might feel a bit like burnout or that field poker has become more of a grind would strongly recommend that you know having new strategical impulses and being more curious about the game excited about the game i mean the word excited already kind of says few right you get excited yeah. uh that actually it might look harder but it's actually way easier to implement yeah and i think if you don't have this in your in your current uh 
like schedule or whatever games you play, then it's probably time to switch something up or change something because uh, yeah, you cannot. I, I imagine you cannot really keep going for very long if you don't if you don't have this uh, kind of enjoyment. Hi guys, Renee aka the Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now one of these of course is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. At some point you uh, moved away from the Netherlands and you now live in like the poker capital of Europe, Vienna. What has made you decide to move to Vienna? Yeah, so um, back then, uh, or uh, I mean, yeah, back then it was the, 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 the way the tax system worked in the Netherlands. It was a little bit of a, a gray area still, or at least I was, I was paying taxes, um, but it was unclear if we were able to claim those back at some point. Uh, and and the, the way the system works, it, it's it's pretty bad for uh, for MTT players because it was a monthly tax, um, and obviously, uh, or at least um, the way it was set up is like you cannot um, claim back your losses in losing months. So basically, if you have a losing month uh, in the in the end of the year, it ends you end up paying a lot more effective tax than the thirty percent that they were charging in the winning months because the losing months you don't get any any money back. Um, and obviously in MTTs, it's very hard to not have a losing month every once in, once in a while, especially if you play high stakes. Uh, so that was um, that was just not very attractive, and there was some chance that we would get the taxes back. In the end, uh, the court case was won. I, I still have to go through this process, by the way. I think I think I got back like a pretty decent amount of money, but I you have to claim it, of course. So I still have to. Uh, this is the this is the stuff that poker players are not very good at, like. Uh, the the administration side of things but uh, i i still have to do this uh, in the end it worked out uh, but yeah i was this, this was very uh, uncertain and also i mean there was a regulation coming up of the uh, the gambling market and it was also uncertain if you could uh, keep playing on on all sides and in the end um, 
all sides uh, went went uh, black, and I think only GG got a license uh, immediately, and the rest, uh, I mean, stars, I think they're still waiting on, uh, on uh, stars to get a license. So yeah, all this stuff I didn't really want to have to deal with anymore. Um, and then I was, uh, at the time I was, uh, I was single. So I was like, okay, I mean, if I ever want to live abroad, this would be a pretty good time to do it. Uh, I have basically all the freedom that I can uh, hope for. And yeah, like financially, it makes a lot of sense to do. Uh, and, and I've, uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened. Like I, I met some other guys, um, I think at a livestock, like Dutch guys. Uh, and then we were talking about this and, uh, or it was one guy and in the end, a friend of his also, uh, moved, moved with us. Uh, but yeah, he was also interested and, in, um, then we just kind of ended up organizing it and, uh, yeah, just I, Vienna seemed like a pretty good choice because there's so many poker players who live here. Um, it's still pretty close to the Netherlands. Uh, so I could still visit whenever I want pretty easily uh, with not having to put too much time into the traveling. And then, um, yeah, like it's central. Like if, it, if you think about live poker, like uh, the EPTs and everything, you can get, every, like I can go by train to Prague, for example, like this is uh, also a pretty big upside, I guess. So yeah, it was, it was pretty uh, easy choice kind of. And um, I definitely, uh, definitely don't regret it. I, I really enjoy uh, Vienna and living here. Um, obviously it was a little bit weird because COVID hit right basically we, we moved in uh, I think in July or June and then I mean the end of the year COVID was uh, was a big thing already and uh, it was basically uh, I don't know one and a half two years of lockdowns or something so it was a little bit weird uh, like one of the reasons also that I moved here tax-wise was to be able to play live tournaments outside of um, Europe because those were taxed so heavily that you couldn't, basically couldn't play them uh, so I thought, okay, like the, the summer after I, I move here, I'm going to go to Vegas and like, you know, grind a full WSP. This is, I don't want to call it a dream, but like every, every tournament professional should play at least one full schedule in the summer, I think in, in Vegas, like this is just something that you need to experience. Uh, and coming summer, I'm fi finally going to do it after, you know, three, four years or something, however long it's been. Um, so yeah, I had to put those kind of plans on hold a little bit, and obviously life in Vienna was also a little bit different in uh, lockdown times compared to uh, right now, but uh, very enjoyable, uh, very very cool city to live. I'm curious, so you 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 you're always trying to become a better poker player. You mentioned you're living in Vienna. You you team up with, or at least you you team up with other poker players. Everything trying you're trying to do everything in order to get better. I'm curious, like take us through. A week in the life of Jans, you know, trying to become a better poker player, maybe back then or now. How how does that look? You already said Monday is recovery day, and yeah. then you play what two, three times a week. Yeah, so uh, like off off series. Uh, so let's say right now I would play um, Sundays always, basically whenever I can help it, and then I usually play Tuesdays. And maybe Thursdays, although like Thursday right now is a little bit of the, it's the progressive knockout day. So like most of the big, like the one case and everything is progressive knockout and don't really, I'm not really a big fan of this format. So I, if I can help it, I, I don't play these, uh, I don't play Thursdays, but yeah, then Tuesday, uh, usually Mondays, uh, like some tournaments are, are, are two day tournaments. So like Mondays is uh, usually a day that I grind as well. So like, I think two, three days a week, uh, if it's not if there's nothing special running uh, into the series, and then basically, um, yeah, I'm pretty uh, like after my grind, I, I spend like one or two hours setting up sims basically, so like for for basically all the interesting spots that I had. So the sims can run overnight, and then like whenever I wake up, I have breakfast, 
uh, and I'll just go through the sims and then run whatever amount of additional sims still and like do some more specific like uh, focus studying on certain spots that I think you can improve on so yeah that's I think that's kind of what my week looks like and then like on days that I don't grind let's say um, yeah like for example Friday or something I try to do something fun like play football uh, go to dinner go out something like this um, so yeah that's that's roughly uh, what it looks like but uh, yeah like the basically the way my process works like I play a session I have a lot of st stuff noted from the session, especially hands, like uh, certain spots that I want to improve on. Um, yeah, and, and it's not always uh, great. Like sometimes when you when you play until pretty late, because obviously, yeah, in tournaments, you're kind of forced to play uh, at night. And then I'm very bad at just leaving the computer and going to bed. I always have to like set some, like set up some sims, like check up on some spots, like, and then this usually takes at least a few hours. So if you grind until pretty late, like sometimes this means going to bed really, really late. So I try to improve that a little bit. Like also for your general health, I think it's good to be very consistent with the time you go to bed. So I try to not go to bed later than like, let's say 4 a.m. But yeah, if you play until 4 a.m. and you still have, I don't know, 15 sims to run, it usually takes like one and a half, two hours. And then, yeah, it's uh, it's not always great. So I try to avoid that, but yeah, I think this process for me works pretty nicely. Like, so I try to set up the Sims um, after my session immediately. Next day, first thing after having breakfast, I go through these and then uh, and then I study whatever else I think uh, I need to focus on in the, in the few hours that are left. And then if there's not a session, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not that much time left because usually most of my afternoon, yeah, you know, besides maybe going out for groceries or going out for a walk or doing something with my girlfriend is spent on studying and then um, and then a session again. And, and if I don't play a session, then I in the evening, usually I do something with my girlfriend. I think you mentioned earlier as well, the closing things off. I think this again falls in that trend, right? You close off the, the your, your grind by everything that you have doubts about. You try to look up next day, you process this and then sort of it's it's done. You know, there's no uncertainties building up or etc etc and then every session you can start sort of fresh again which i think is a very good skill to not bring a lot of uncertainties or tilt or whatever uh to your next session so yeah, it's, it's a very very good feeling uh because usually i, I i'm a little bad at uh like I, I save too many spots usually to to run through but sometimes you you hit this uh this point where you run all the spots that you saved from the previous session and then it it really i mean it's rare because i i, I save too much of them but yeah like uh, it, it really feels very good if you start your next session having run all your all all the sims that you wanted to run right and you feel completely like you, ha you have complete closure from this previous session like you've improved on all the spots that you thought you could improve on uh and then you're ready for the next one and i mean on uh, i i usually manage to do this when uh, when I don't play the next day, but if I if I have two days that I uh, consecutive days that I play, it, you, I usually don't uh, don't succeed in this. But if I do, it it, it always feels it feels very good. So. I think it was Goosecore in the pot that as well said no session is played before the previous session is reviewed. It's kind of uh, reviewed. It's kind of along the same lines, and yeah. I, I would say I do exactly the same. Like I have certain focus points. It depends how much hands that I played in the session but after the session i will always review i will run like some specific filters like okay these are some spots that i'm focused on uh i'll run a filter that i made for that specific spot oh uh, flop goes check check 
how did I construct my betting ranges in this spot, for example, is a spot that I currently have in my post-session filter. Goes check, check. And I want to kind of look out uh, on like some possibilities in this node. So those are then spots that I review. And then also what I think really helps, I basically then base how I did my session based on did I execute my focus points, not on how was the dollar results over this insignificant sample. So I can have lost a lot of money, but then I review my focus points like, hey, I nailed on my focus points. So I still feel good about my session in a way. And again, that so if you feel good, you can sort of close the session and start a new session fresh. I think that's actually a very good skill. Yeah, yeah, I, I, this is what I try to do as well, Anna. It, uh, I think it works works uh, very well to do it like this. Yeah. How does it then change if there's, for example, a series? How does your your because the series is quite intense. You you might sometimes play every yeah. day, basically. Yeah. So um, I mean, the the way back in the day it was, it, it basically was uh, scheduled for every day. But thank God nowadays uh, Fridays are days off. So like, or at least for. Um, for scoop uh they started doing this a link i think two years ago or something maybe three years ago where they said okay we uh, after listening to uh, player feedback like let's have one day off where there's no or i mean, I mean they, they there will be some events but nothing nothing high stakes or like nothing with a big guarantee or something like this so at least you have one fixed day a week off which is pretty good so you don't get the fomo uh of having to take a day off when there's still stuff running you know um but yeah, uh, during during a big series, like obviously a lot more time goes into playing compared to other weeks, so you have less time for studying. Like you don't, if you basically don't have off days, and I mean on on a Friday that I don't play, I don't, I'm not going to study many hours because I just want to this one day a week that I don't play, I, I definitely want to do something other than something poker related. So usually, I, I would still my process would still look something like what I described, but it it's just less hours for studying because. If you play every day, that means you go to bed later every day. Like, yeah. Also, these series events usually long, uh, run longer, so you have you have fewer hours uh, per day that you can focus on studying. But that's what I why I try to um, study a little bit more usually before series. Like, really try to get all the details right, or like not have any doubt of any parts of my strategy, and then go into the series feeling very well prepared. So. Um, yeah, and then after the series, there's a process of like, there's a lot of leftover um, spots you need you want to go through, for example, and then you take some more time for that. So, but yeah, usually uh, the, the study hours are, yeah, at least uh, comparatively to the to the playing hours, uh, a lot a lot less during a big series. Yeah, you uh, you you review more after the series is done. It's like you see it more as one long grind, basically. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, there's still obviously some studying in between, and 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 you will also like um, because everyone is playing actively in that period. So like, you do get a lot of feedback from others, for example, like talk through hands, maybe a little bit more. But like the specific studying you do on your own, that's that's definitely something that happens a lot less. You just don't have the time uh, when big series are running. You mentioned studying a lot. Uh, obviously, studying has evolved. I know. I mean, if you started 15 years ago, that was basically pre-solver area. Now we live in post-solver area. Yeah. Uh, how did? What kind of impact did the introduction of solvers have on your game? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because I th like nowadays I would consider myself like a pretty theory-based player, or uh, yeah, like not. I don't really have any massive exploits that I try to execute or. I don't, I don't really deviate that much. Like obviously, certain amount, but not not anything crazy. Like there are certain players that that 
very elite players that do that way more. Um, but yeah, back in the day, I, I think I used to be way more, um, I mean, everyone was kind of a field player back then, but I guess most of what I did was based on either stuff that I learned off the table from like, you know, forums and, and videos, and then also just having a pretty good feel for, uh, for the player pool. And, and this is, I think, a skill that you can only develop if you play a, big, a high volume. Um, so yeah, I would just play a lot, um, try to pick up some things from these, uh, you know, whatever study material there was, and then really try to um, have a good feel for how to how to play pool plays and and try to, uh, yeah, you know, like kind of exploit them, I guess, in, in in that sense. And nowadays, it's it's a little bit different. Like it's more like having a very very good, um, yeah, like fundamental strategy, and then wherever you think there's room for it, you you will deviate a little bit, but that's kind of my, my approach now. So I guess solvers play the huge role in that, like the shift from that one strategy to, to the other strategy is, it, it wouldn't have happened if, if solvers weren't around. And yeah, I, I think in general, like it's it's probably not a good thing for poker that solves, solvers uh, exist. Like I, I think the, the game would be probably more fun or yeah, it would, it would definitely be better. I think if, if solvers, uh, never made their appearance but yeah once they are there you have to use them because it's just such a great tool to improve so yeah i think i think nowadays if you don't use them it's uh you you, I, you can still reach high stakes if you're lucky or you're some insane talent at, at poker or uh, exploring the pool or something but i think uh, it's very hard to if you don't use them yeah i think also like the idea behind strategy kind of changed right back then I mean, I could talk for myself as well. You know, you had like some tricks, some adjustments, but you didn't really think about like a executing a global solid strategy. Like ba basically those were kind of things that I personally wasn't really thinking about. I was just always looking at my opponents. What are they up to? And I try to figure out, you know, what they're up to and try to yeah, play, play my hands correctly versus them sort of in a vacuum. I wasn't yeah. really thinking about an overall bigger picture type of strategy. And that's definitely that the solver has made me realize the and see see the value of. Do you remember still one of your biggest aha moments when you started to work with the solver where it's like, oh, that's how it actually works. I'm sure also there were many, or at least that's what I experienced when I started to work with solvers, many things that I was already doing, a solver was also doing. Like it's not like pre-solve area that players that were playing, we knew a lot of, we understood intuitively a lot of things that a solver in the end was also doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think I guess mostly um, maybe maybe uh, in terms of bet sizes, like it, it really opened my eyes, I guess, to the possibility of, of a lot of bet sizes. Like I think before solvers, I was kind of stuck with like, oh, you just bet one third or two thirds or something, you know, like uh, it, I think solvers opened my eyes to, to the possibility of over bets and min bets and you know, leads and all this kind of stuff like that. You don't really that, that is kind of kind of a, a lot of hard harder to come up with um, on your own. So I think I think that's probably the one thing that I would name. But I cannot really remember like a single aha moment that, where I was like, "Wow, this is this is sick," or like this. Now I understand it or something. It, maybe it, it it has happened and I just forgot about it. But at, at least it didn't uh, didn't stuck uh, stuck with me. For me, I I remember. Definitely, like you said, the and up until today, basically, as, as long as you give the solver a small a small enough sizing, it will start betting it at some point. That's usually like the the overall trend. But I remember the first like introduction of like smaller bets everywhere, and in on basically all streets. 
that was definitely something that was way more uh, eye-opening for me personally. Like, oh, wow. And the betting volume and smaller bets. I remember that was definitely some things that... Uh, I guess maybe uh, also like responses to very small bets. Um, yeah, yeah, like versus really small bet sizes, solvers just don't fold much at all, right? And this, I, I guess if you could call this an aha moment, where you, if you look at these kind of responses versus like small leads, for example, or like min bets, and you're like, wow, this, I, I like every single player in the pool would miss like half these combos. They would just overfold so massively. So I guess solvers make, make you think about that kind of, um, yeah, these possibilities, right? Because it, then it would mean if you execute just these strategies and people overfold so massively, you gain so much EV in these spots, right? So I, I guess those kind of things are, uh, are really the things that, uh, that stood out for me initially with solvers. Yeah, I remember in the podcast we did with Yuri, I also said, Solvers didn't necessarily open my eyes for how to play, or at least, you know, in terms of copying what the solver is doing, but it actually opened my eyes at how much things are actually not, not GTO and what actually the correct exploitative adjustment would be. So he didn't start to play more GTO. He actually started to exploit way more. Did it yeah. take you a little bit of time? I remember when solvers first came out, like all the way in the beginning, I was a bit hesitant. You know, it was like, ah, oh, GTO, Bob Michael doesn't play GTO, the, the the classic one. So it definitely took me a little a little bit of time and a yeah. little bit of losing money before I was like, maybe I should look into the solver type of stuff. Yeah, for me as well. And and also because I, I've i never been uh, very tech savvy. So like, uh, yeah, like getting, uh, working with new software is not, uh, I'm not really that good at it, I would say. So it also, it doesn't spark an immediate interest for me, right? And, mm -hmm. and back then, uh, it, it wasn't immediately clear how big of a thing solves would be. Uh, I remember that I did a study session, I think it was um, with uh, Polish rack that I knew from Livestops. And um, and he sh showed me like, you know, a fire solver. And, and I, I remember like at first it didn't really, I mean, I, I thought, okay, nice program, like sure, whatever. And I, I think even the probably weeks or months after I didn't really bother using it. And then obviously at some point you start hearing more and more and more about it. So I, I, back then I definitely wasn't an early adopter. And I think that that's why nowadays when there's new software coming out, like, you know, three ways, uh, software for three way or something or whatever new stuff, I, I try to use it as quickly as I can because, you know, as you, it, it could be the next big breakthrough in terms of strategy software, right? So um adapting early nowadays could be worth a lot of money i think so I, I try to be on top of these things a little bit more than i than i used to be back then so be on top of all the ai stuff releasing oh, very yeah. soon AI, AI, ai solvers are now becoming a thing which is pretty scary i think especially for uh yesterday i uh, looked a little bit at uh, ruse and i yeah these ai solvers are are pretty scary i think for uh, especially for cash uh oh switch yeah. to tournaments to be fair i find tournaments a nicer form of poker anyway not necessarily to grind but more I, I think it has more it has so much more aspects to make the game fun like if i would be a recreational i would always play a tournament i would not play a cash game yeah that, that's why i think tournaments have uh are, are going to be around for longer it, no, it longevity just, is huge yeah it, it attracts regulars more and it's just way harder to cheat effectively i think in tournaments um it's also just it's way harder to get really good at yeah, nah, I, uh, yeah, well, you could debate about that. Like getting to the, I mean, if you would have to try right now to get to the top of cash games or to the top of tournaments, I mean, there's just so much more variance in tournaments. So I, I guess, and you could never really say if you're the top dog in tournaments because no one 
Like no how, would, how would you even define that? The cash is pretty easy. Like whoever is open sitting 100k. Yeah, whoever uh, doesn't want to play someone else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it's pretty clear. But um, but in terms it's not so clear at all. Like it's not that someone is sit, open sitting their 100k main and tried and the table doesn't fill. Like this does, just doesn't <laughs> happen, right? So um, yeah, it, I don't know. But I, I would think purely in terms of technical skill yeah I, I don't know which one is harder like there's certainly more way more uh nuances maybe to or like different nuances to entities but cash is like the general level of the, the top players in cash is like really really high i think so i don't know yeah i remember kudinov i he, he said uh entities are broader but cash was deeper he said, or at least that's how he described it. I, f- I thought that, that made a lot of a, sense. That could be a pretty... You can pretty be way more accurate in cash, given that the variables are usually the same in terms of stack size, ranges. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting because I used to think um, that tournament players who... or Sorry, cash players who, who play tournaments sometimes, like let's, you know, some cash players would show up for big scoops on this or something. I always used to think like, okay, these guys probably crush tournaments pretty hard because the the pool is just that much softer, right? If you have a, if you have good fundamentals, you're gonna crush. But I, I've really turned around on that a little bit uh, recently because, and especially like if you if you play like for example these Trident builds, there's a bunch. of, I mean, I know some of these cash guys, and like they are very lost uh, when when stacks are short. And when ICM is a thing, like they're just punting around. And I mean, and they know they are. Like they, it's not like they. They claim to be the best at that, but I think the edge that you get from this, and especially because the stakes are so much higher when you're deep in the tournament compared to the early levels where they have the biggest win rate. Like I don't, I don't, I, I never played a Titan from the start with two on the big blinds because I know I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna win much there if anything. But I know I'm pretty good at like the short sex stuff and the ICM stuff, so it makes way more sense for me to wait for that period of the, of the tournament, right? And that's where the money is made, right? That's, that's when the stake, you play effective stakes that are so high that it really matters a lot more how you do there compared to the early stage. So I, I really came around on that thought that, that tournament players can, can always do well in cash. However, I do think if a tournament player puts puts a lot of, or like a, not even a lot, like a little bit of effort and, and studying time towards getting better at short stack and getting better at ICM, um, especially short stack, like it's it's pretty solved and like it's not that hard. ICM is, has a lot of nuances and it's, it's it can be a little bit counterintuitive, but I think if you get enough reps in, you can definitely improve very quickly. The learning curve is pretty steep, I think. So, yeah, I I I, I would hope that the, the cash guys uh, don't all start doing that because then uh, Tritons be- would become a lot harder. But uh, yeah, I think I think nowadays a lot of cash guys kind of show up for Triton tournaments. They they're still winning in fields usually. I think not. Not all of them, and not all not all fields, but uh, but they could be winning a lot more. I think if they put like let's say a few hours a week extra and just studying uh, studying tournaments. But um, yeah, I, I will. I imagine this is going to happen at some point that the people start a little bit putting in a little bit more effort into their tournament game. The the high six cash guys, and especially uh, when the high six cash is drying up, uh, you know, like this is a trend that seems to be uh, going on right now. So I think it's a bit. Uh, hmm. I don't know what's the right word. I want to say cocky, disrespectful, or I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, but as a cash player, to just hop in a Triton without, you know, having done some work in like, oh, let, let me see what happens if I don't have 100 big blinds, you know? No, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. They they they're, they try to improve, but um, yeah, I don't know if it's cocky. Like there, there's there's so many recreationals that play them that, you know, it, it's it's 
could still be very plus EV. So there's also, you could also argue that there's no reason to not play them. But yeah, like, I think at some point they're they're gonna make a, a more more of an effort to to improve at the ICM and short sex stuff, and then then they're gonna be really dangerous plays because they're gonna they're gonna be so good post flop, right? There's no way I'm ever gonna be better than the high six cash guys at post flop. Like, I don't see how that's ever gonna happen. So once they start beating me at ICM, then it's it's gonna be uh, lights out for me, I think. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it's not like you have to. Re- it's not like you have to relearn poker. It's just like you have to. F- rethink about like okay how do the uh, how do my mechanics of how i understand poker how do they transition to shorter sec play like what are like the main heuristics that change you know when we're not 100 but when we're 40 30 20 10 uh, some icm uh, stuff involved i actually played uh, managed to somehow play a final table not that recently it was last summer in a tournament that i played here in malta and then i and then i reviewed it uh, together with a tournament play and i definitely had some wrong ideas Basically, I remember they were explaining me the the concept of that I shouldn't play hands because that makes more money than I do play hands. Yeah, folding, folding makes money. That concept is all. Yeah, it's, yeah it's all. I, I remember actually the first time, I think actually there was a hand. The first time I heard about this concept was yours explaining it to me. It was a hand that you played, I think, on the MCOP 10K, where basically you opened the cutoff or something and I think you were uh, big stack, yours was big stack and then yours folded a stand off. And he folded because there were shorties behind. And then basically by folding, it would make it way more likely that they would make a light shove and bust, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, this is an actual thing. And and I guess if you come from a cash background, this is not this is not something that's very easy to to wrap your head around. Like, oh, I I fold, so I make money. But yeah, if if, if the probability of someone else busting goes up and you can make a pay jump, then yes, in a lot of instances, this is this is. Yeah, I, I was making like some opens and then he was like, why are you opening this hand? You should just fold because there's two shorties there. And if you open, they only go all in with the X percent. Whereas if you fold, they might jam, I don't know how many percent. And then yeah. the chances of someone busting, someone busting is always good for you, especially because I was not the chip leader. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> reviewing it, I made, I made a lot of mistakes but my mother was always well if ecm starts to matter that means i already made the money <laughs> but this is obviously well, that's, that's, not a, that's, not that's, that's not gonna get you very far uh, no, no, no i agree i probably uh, if i would play more mtts i probably need to uh, I, need, I need an improvement and yeah. if i want improvement to get to my next point actually thank you for uh for replying to this question this was actually a question that i had written down like mistakes that cash game players makes when they play mtts so you were oh, you yeah. were ahead of me there if I then need coaching, you know, I can knock on your door. You've coached a lot. You mentioned Bit B already. I think yeah. nowadays you also do uh, coaching for CNC, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I'm curious to to know what would be what are like some common leaks that you see in students who, who knock on your door for coaching? What are like very common leaks that you see players have? Um, yeah. So a small disclaimer, I, like one-on-one coaching i don't do that much anymore i i just um i mean I've, I've done a lot over the years but i i i started enjoying like improving myself a little bit more than i started to, uh, than, than i enjoyed teaching others so i i really uh like volume wise in terms of coaching I, I haven't done that much uh like last year or something um but yeah i mean obviously i still have a pretty good idea like i guess if someone would come to me right now i mean in entities, still a, bit, a lot of people are just way too passive or folding too much. Um, yeah, I mean, 
and it's very hard to not fall too much, I guess, uh, especially in uh, chippy VMTTs, like you just get to VP quite a lot. But yeah, this is the most common, uh, I would say, for mid stakes, low stakes regs, just being way too passive and being uh, and just falling too much. This is this is the biggest leak. And I, I, I don't know if that's in cash also. The, the yeah, case. I was going to say this is this is exactly the same. If you would look at cash trends from lower limits to higher limits, the lower you go, the more they fall, the less aggressive they are. And the higher you go, the less they fall, and the more aggressive they become. Yeah, this is this is roughly the same, I think, in entities. And then, um, yeah, I, I, th I think, and, and recently, uh, people have really improved in that area. But I think ICM-wise, um, like, a lot of people have, have huge leaks. And, and this, again, this is actually one of the mo mo more expensive leaks that you can have because you play, on Final Fantasy, you play the highest stakes you, could, you, you can play in your games, in entities. So if you make small mistakes even there, it's going to cost you so much more um, than like some tiny mistake that you make in the beginning of a tournament in GPV. So uh, yeah, I would always I would always recommend really focus on your your late stage um, play and and try to really uh, optimize that first uh, if you're already at a certain level uh, early stage because yeah it's just like in the end of the day you just want to improve in the areas that that um, you know are going to improve your hourly the most and I think it makes sense to focus on whenever the stakes are highest uh, and improve there. I remember was it maybe Fader talking about this once, like in terms of putting in volume in terms of your heads up play, where I don't know how did, how MTT players think about this now, but especially if you play shorter fields, like heads up is where you play for quite a lot of money, where in the past there was more of a mindset, well, you know, heads up, yeah, I'll figure it out as you go. Is that, for example, something that you put a lot of time in as well? Um, well, I wouldn't say a lot of time, but like, for example, um, before I went to Triton, I, uh, I ran all the hazard ranges for big blind anti because it's so much different, right? Like you play a full anti, whereas online you play, you know, uh, a very small anti compared to a uh, big blind anti. So I, I ran those ranges and I, I looked at the differences, like, and it is funny that I got heads up twice. <laughs> like I, I remember running these ranges and even telling my, uh, friend that i was going with like oh yeah we'll run some uh you know big blind, big blind uh anti heads up range and he's like okay yeah uh, i mean for what so for the 30k yeah. I was like, yeah, you, know, you never know right like i might as well and then obviously get heads up twice which is pretty insane uh but i think like with heads up there's some the thing is like very often for example um uh, deals occur especially in uh yeah if, if you're heads up or if you're shorthanded with a few racks especially heads up this is where it doesn't matter anymore whoever has a chip lead, right? Like ICM wise, it, ICM is, it stops when, when 300 play stops. So I think if you heads up with a rack, it usually makes sense from, even if someone has this very tiny edge to just make the deal from a variance point of view. Um, so I think that already diminishes the amount of heads up. Like let's say on average, like maybe half of them are dealt or something that already eliminates half of the heads ups that you play for any significant amount. And then, um, yeah, I, I think I do think you uh, you can you can yeah the learning curve is pretty steep. But then also like it's so rare that you play heads up. Like playing a final table or playing down to like three four handed is very common. But getting heads up is is pretty rare, even if you play high volume. Um, so yeah, I would I would the way I approach it is basically I try to uh, know the ranges pretty well. I obviously ran some stuff for, for post-op as well. I tried to like have a pretty decent grasp of the, the general concepts, but I don't study this for many hours. Uh, like, or that makes sense. And for a good reason. Study routine, basically. 
Um, so yeah, and and whenever I I enter a different format like live uh, high stakes live poker, and I yeah, then I would like to know a little bit of what's going on. And I'm glad that I did it. I'm I'm not sure if it made any difference because um, yeah, probably it made a little bit of a difference. Uh, so yeah, it, it's good to and if it costs you like one two hours, it's definitely worth it probably. But I think any any time beyond that, so you would have to put in a lot more hours for for small incremental improvements. I don't think this would pay off for tournament players to uh, to look into us up too much, and so, unless you start, especially if you play bigger fields, right? The smaller yeah, your fields are, very small fields. Like the Trident fields are still pretty big. Like on average, I'm not sure how often I would go heads up there during this trip, but probably very very rarely, right? That yeah. happens twice. There's obviously some unicorn event that that is yeah, it's never supposed to happen. So I, I think um, yeah, it, it makes the most sense, and and this. I, I guess this is kind of an important important thing if you're if you're playing poker full time, you want to spend most of your study time on stuff that actually improves your ROI. And I think a lot of people just spend way too much time on stuff, like for example, people love to to tack like huge hands that they played, like huge pots, four bet, five bet pots, whatever, like triple barrel in a four bet pot. Like this is not a spot, this is a spot you play once a month. This is not going to help you at all. This is not going to help your win rate. It's not going to help you hourly to know what combo to triple barrel in a format plot. Like you want to spend your study time as effectively as possible. So you want to uh, study the spots that come up a lot that are worth a lot. And, and a lot of people, I, I'm sometimes mind blown by what, what kind of stuff people study and spend a lot of time on uh, that is not helping their, their bottom line at all. Um, so th this is this would be a big big thing that I would uh, try to try to tell people that I coach. Like, Spend, try to spend your study time very effectively and, and don't spend it on stuff that you don't need that you're never going to need basically yeah so either frequent spot or a high return like for example you were explaining icm yeah exactly so yeah. in for example I was ben Hita was talking about pre-flop a lot right so in tournaments obviously pre-flop matter you shouldn't tolerate small mistakes there i guess i, I think i think if i uh, if i would have to take a guess about my study time it's like 80 percent pre-flop maybe 20 percent post-flop something like this wow uh, because yeah, like, and then have, within that eighty percent, there's also preflop ICM, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have way more preflop decisions uh, than postflop decisions. Um, that's just the design of the game. And I imagine my, my, like, my study is like ninety nine percent one percent, ninety nine percent postflop, one percent preflop. Yeah, it's completely the other way around. Because and, and I think if you always play hundred big blind chippy v, it makes sense at some point. You just there's there's nothing more to learn about preflop ranges. Like there's it's they're just set in stone, kind of. Mm -hmm. like, Maybe like here and there, like if the recreational comes in the game is different or something. Yeah, like obviously, you know, there's like some, some adjustments you make and even right. in cash as well, you know, some people buy in short, you have short tables. So, and then sometimes people are 20 BB, 40 BB, yeah. you know, th there are some basic things, but it's again, in terms of frequency, it's not frequent enough for me to, you know, go dedicate more time than necessary. I know the adjustments. I know roughly what the stack of ranges would be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and for uh, for these things, it's kind of the other way around. Like you still play a lot of uh, post flop, but most of your important decisions, uh, and especially ICM related decisions, like in ICM, you you basically never see a flop. Like it, this is why final tables are not a lot of fun to reel. Like it's just a guy raising and a guy shoving, and and you know there's no there's no basically no showdowns. There's 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 basically no interesting uh, post flop plots, especially uh, because like a lot of everyone's volume is, is on GG. The structures are very fast. Uh, when stacks are shorter, obviously it, it takes away a lot of the postal play. So it, it's not a very fun railing experience, I guess, in that regard. Um, 
but yeah, it also means that you you should focus your study on on preflop, I think, because that's and even just... post po, po, even if they go post flop, playing post flop ECM is also not fireworks. May, well, maybe from one side. It, well, there's still there's still uh, it's still like a lot different than uh, ChipPP post flop, but um, and, and that's definitely I guess an area that uh, that a lot a lot of people are understudy uh, in like post flop ICM, but. Um, but yeah, it doesn't happen so often. So it also makes sense, I think, that people don't study it that often because it's just really, yeah, you have so many more preflop decisions than post decisions in, uh, in entities. All right. So we have ICM. People are too passive and too foldy. So AKA become less risk averse. Well, good good luck with that. Also from like a, a mental game side, maybe yeah. Anu can hop in here in a second to, to see how we can help players with that. Then we have, you know, studying spots that are actual EV, so frequent and you know, that actually make you a lot of money like ICM. And then the last point I got actually from your, from your Twitter feed, great Twitter feed, by the way, you got a good Twitter game. Definitely recommend following Jans over there. You, you tweeted saying, let me just size exactly what my hand is worth. Quoted every empty, every empty T-Rex. Yeah. Well, this so is that's probably leak number four then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But this is just a big. I, I guess it's just a player pool uh, leak. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same in cash or at. Yeah, it's up, the same. It's to a certain same. level in cash. Um, but yeah, and, and sometimes uh, I try to try to not do this anymore. But I've I've been many times in a situation where someone bets river and you just like, I just I could just like pinpoint whatever he has like down to like a few combos, right? Because it's just it's just the sizing like this. He's just kind of giving away his hand strength, and you still call your whatever middle pair because you just to confirm your read. And then obviously had that, and I, I really try to make a conscious effort, like to not do that anymore. If I if I think I'm very, yeah, this is kind of more. It's also like the, the theory versus a deviating uh, debate, right? Like I, I nowadays I, I really try to take the deviation route and just fold there because I know I'm supposed to call, and but I know he he's always going to have this certain hand group. Uh, and I think these reads, as if you play high volume, if you if you play for a very long time, you get a really really good feel for these kind of reads and situations. And that's not that that's something that's not transferable. I think like you cannot teach that to someone. And I think it's it's a it can be a pretty big part. Like I, I'm not sure how big part how big of a part of my game that is exactly, but I think it's a pretty big part. And and I, I think maybe people underestimate that a little bit, like because they expect you like if people hire me as a coach, for example. Like they would love that I could just like kind of teach them how I play and that's and they can execute that as well or something like this, right? That's obviously not how it works. Partly because yeah, like you build up a feeling for the game or like a feeling for how the pool plays over a long time, and by playing very regularly, and and that's not something that that you can transfer onto someone else. I think very easily. So um, yeah, and I and I try to uh, to, to do that a little bit more uh, like really. You know, just make it disrespectful fold if I think a guy just sizes his hand and he's just going to have a certain, certain, uh, very specific range. I mean, I think it's important that you start your decision making process at a point that people often forget to think about, which is what is the quality of my opponent? Because if your opponent, usually people who are more transparent like that, they're not going to be at a certain elite level. So then yeah. obviously, more deviation type of place will be often more correct. Basically, the stronger your opponent, the more you follow uh, like theory and GTO, and the weaker your opponent, the more you start to deviate once you have the information, right? 
that's kind yeah. of how it works. So when you say, for example, that nowadays you play close to GTO, well, that's probably also because nowadays your opponents are playing close to GTO. So there's simply less room in terms of messing around hope, exploitative. Yeah. You're, 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 you're just basically torching money. Yeah, I wouldn't say I would I play close close to GTO. I mean, I would I would uh, an attempt to love it if that was the case. But I I, I would I, I I hope I play somewhat close to the version of GTO that I know. Obviously, like playing close to real GTO, I think it was still very far away. Luckily, um, but yeah, what you said is true. Yeah, I definitely. So, for example, you you compete in the in in very tough fields already, and you were mentioning that. You know, you're taking some shots, or at least you're also playing a lot of 10Ks regularly. What what are European sets like those guys? So let's say 10K Rex or even 5K plus Rex. What sets them apart from like 1K Rex? Why are the high six Rex tougher to play against then? Is it, for example, because they're less transparent with their bet sizing? You cannot just pinpoint them on a the hand. They don't, I mean, they, they, they don't give you easy decisions like that. I think most of them are just extremely lucky, to be honest. <laughs> no, uh, uh, some of them, some of them, definitely. Uh, I mean, uh, like if you look at the, the the 10K player pool, like some of them, like most of them are very, very good. And then some of them are there because they are on a heater or, you know, like this This is the beauty of entities. Uh, but I would say... This part of the ecosystem, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but I would say what sets them apart? I think, um, yeah, just general aggressiveness. Like, I, I think... Yeah, if you if you compare playing a uh, hundred dollars on to a 10k, yeah, you the general play is just a lot more passive. It's just a lot more calling. Like you know, like in, in 10k, this everyone is just uh, decently aggressive, like all the regulars at least. So they put you in a lot more spots that are that are tough. Like they put you in a lot more tough decisions. If I play some hundred dollar tournament, I won't get a lot of tough decisions usually. Um, so I guess that's kind of they, they, people fight for bots more it's it's just hard generally harder to win chips uh, i couldn't like pinpoint a very specific thing but like the general level of your of the, the regulars that, that play this these fields is just very high and then obviously they run or like they are beatable because there's also a lot of amateurs in them uh, and especially on gg then specifically nowadays like this is basically the only side where on those kind of stakes a lot of uh recreational players make an appearance basically yeah, I think good players always do the thing that you don't want them to do. And for example, when when yeah. lesser let, let's say less less quality players, when they then are aggressive, you're not in a tough spot because they're never aggressive. So when they're aggressive, they usually have a good hand. So you just fold. It's it's a simple. It's it's when it's always always a sweet. Then you also have some guys who take aggression to a next level, and then it's just like yeah, I have a hand. So you know, if you have it, you had it. So that's you're also no longer in a tough decision because it's just too aggro even though two aggro is usually harder to play against than two passive. I think yeah. I saw on, on, on your Twitter wall, I saw I saw a, a picture. It says, Adamo is bluffing every street again. What do we do? Full pre-flop, full flop, full turn. And one guy said, call down. And then someone oh, yeah. got angry, if I recall yeah, correctly. Yeah, I well, that, uh, and this was uh, at Adamo's peak when he, I think he went on this massive, um, was it last year or the year, year before where he went on, a, on like a massive heater when he won everything online and live basically in, in, a, in a year. Um, but yeah, like, and it's easy. It's obviously easy to say. Like, you can you can just say, uh, oh yeah, why don't you just call down everything against? Because he's always bluffing. But if you're in the spot, and I've fallen against the diamond many times, like I, I'm guilty of this myself. But obviously, it's it's funny uh, to see to see other people 
falling to him and then yeah i mean it's it's, it's funny to make fun of and it's it's so apparent what his strategy is but it works very well and, and like there's a reason like he's a super smart guy uh, and he's obviously thought about this like how do i exploit the pool that i play in and he found a very good way to do that by being hyper aggressive and and it this for, uh, for a long time it worked i guess nowadays like people are uh, adjusting a little bit more but it i think he made the correct read that that it takes a long time for a play pool to adjust to a strategy like that and he he really printed with that i mean obviously it's, it's, he crushed these fields so yeah I mean, uh, it's it's also very hard to adjust if you give someone who overblows the river you just fold zero even if you know someone is overgressive, you don't fold yeah. zero. And then you're sitting you there with your bottom, yeah, you're sitting there with your bottom fan, like, and, and Adam was all in for five x plot, and you're like, okay, I mean, yeah. If, 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 if you would just afterwards you note lock, he's like, oh, he's slightly over bluffing. Everything becomes a call. Yeah, you see, you should just always call down. But when you're in the situation, there's other things in taking consideration. Also, with very aggressive players, especially if you then, let's say, for example, you put it out this tweet. Then you, next time you play against a demo, you're like, a demo's on my treat. Is he really going <laughs> to overbluff again against well, me? He knows I'm going to call him down. That's the thing. I, I, I don't think, I, I think he's pretty set in his uh, like aggressive ways. Like, and, and it's, yeah, that's also uh, admirable. Like he, he really just doesn't back down. He just keeps going for it. And uh, I mean, it worked out for him very well, I think. Uh, yeah, so, but, but um, yeah, it was obviously also more of a joke. And I think, I think in general, like there's always some truth to it, of course. Like yeah, of I, course. I do think that this is, he's abusing people that are, are falling to him, but I'm one of them, of course. Like, I mean, it's, and, and if you're in the spot where he's all in for five X spot uh, on the river and you're sitting there with your bluff catcher. Yeah. Good luck calling. Like, this is just, this is what he capitalizes on. Like how hard it is to, to actually cool down in these spots. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very, uh, he's obviously uh, a sicko. And I mean, probably actually like a solver doesn't even, let's say you put his range into a solver and it says bottom pair is a call, blah, blah, blah. It still is not the complete picture. If you're, for example, in a very soft field, like there are some future game considerations, you, Probably, probably you you might still not be able to call because that's probably what you think. Like, am I really gonna risk five x my whole tournament life now with bottom pair while there's free fish at my table who I can just take the money from next hand? And this is probably something yeah. that he can then capitalize on. Yeah, but the thing I don't know with future edge, like if you have a very profitable calling spot, it's it's always gonna be very very hard to beat this with future edge, so to speak. Like, if you can win whatever ten big blinds or something with a river call, like you're not gonna win ten big blinds every hand, like. You know, like you just have to, call. and and but I think ICM is maybe a bigger factor in that. Like tournament life, obviously, is a thing, and Adamo keeps putting you to the test, also deep in tournaments. So, but that's so so that's more psychology. It has nothing to do the the EV. Uh, yeah, I mean, your call doesn't have to be stage, it's, it's, it's it's psychology. Yeah, for sure. Right. Then actually, the last question I had for you was uh, in terms of uh, life entities, as you nowadays also play life entities. Did you encounter any difficulties switching from online play to live? Did you have to make any adjustments? I saw on the final table you were rocking uh, a nice pair of black sunglasses. Yeah, yeah. Very so smooth. I mean, basically, before Trident, I was thinking like, okay, yeah, I like this is the highest I've played. Basically, uh, what what am I gonna do to like increase my V? Um, and one of them was you know no alcohol, uh, and I thought okay, I'm I'm gonna wear sunglasses or at least when it matters um, because who knows if it helps a little bit like with giving off tells or whatever because um yeah like i think for every other poker player as well at some point in my career charlie carroll told me he had a live read on me but he couldn't say what it was 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think it's true, but like, who knows, right? And if you can, uh, if you can avoid that kind of thing, uh, like it doesn't cost me anything to wear sunglasses. Uh, wear, wear sunglasses. So, and especially for Final Tales, by the way, it was pretty nice with the uh, because the lights are pretty bright. So I think it's uh, it was nice anyway for that. But uh, yeah, like these are the very small things that I think if you can increase your EV with by a very small margin. When you when you play this high of stakes, it, it it could be a lot of it could be a significant amount of money. So I figured, um, yeah, th th these were two things I did. Let's see if there was anything else. I mean, if I could, I would have gone to to Vietnam earlier. Um, actually, this is one thing that I if I if I'm doing something like this again, I would definitely do differently because I had someone visiting uh, Vienna uh, right before Triton, and I already planned this like months ago before I decided to go to uh, to Vietnam. So ideally, I would arrive three days earlier get rid of my jet lag and then start playing tournaments and now it was just i came from the airport straight to the tournament area i had 20 minutes left on late reg on the 15k i reg it i bust the second hand or something i i, I re-enter and then i get second on the second bullet I, I had no sleep not i mean I, obviously it was a two-day tournament so i got like a few hours of sleep but and and i think for the whole week I, on average i maybe slept like four hours a night or something maybe five so it, that I mean, that's that really influences the way you can execute and perform in a big way. And I think I mean I I was lucky to get lucky, but I think I could have played better um, if I had eight hours uh, of sleep a night. And I think if I didn't have jet lag, I, I certainly could have done that. So this is something that I would definitely improve on next time. If if I go to like a different time zone, I would I would just fly out way earlier. And in the, in this sense, instance, I, I would have done it if I could, but I uh, unfortunately couldn't. Um, Luckily, I think a lot of players were in the same situation, right? It wasn't EPT France like right before, stopped like one day before or something. Yeah, well, I would I would argue if you if you if you're playing or planning on playing a, a full Triton schedule, you just leave Paris early because like EV wise, it doesn't make any sense to play like some lower stakes tournaments in Paris, fly to Vietnam, have a jet like yeah, that, yeah. Start playing like twenty five k's and fifty k's and hundred k's. So I don't know. I think I think I yeah. If you really if that's your main grind these tournaments, then you should just go early. I mean Ben he said that as well on your podcast like yeah yeah was there a few days early which is the gto thing to do i think um ben heath very gto, GTO. i mean I, I really enjoyed that podcast really uh very insightful i told him i was like, sitting next to him i tried and i said like hey yeah that was a nice uh nice so he inspired you to come on in a way yeah this yeah. is like we, we talked about it if people <laughs> google Jonas irons only in dutch they might find some things but other than that you know this oh, is like I, your, I actually your asked him, I, I asked him like uh, about this and um and then he said like yeah you know initially i didn't want to do it but then at some point i realized like you know people are actually interested to hear what i have to say so why wouldn't i do it and that's why he decided to come on i think uh, and it made me think like ah oh, you know and then obviously i've been to tourney and uh, and you asked me and i was like yeah, okay let's let's do it then yeah to go to come back to the sunglass i think smart move right you don't know what you don't know so yeah and like i said what's the effort you you wear sunglasses that's it but other than that you're you're not personally into uh you don't let life tell screw your decision-making process. No, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had even the remote possibility of of uh, of, of having a life tell. I've I've never even looked at someone and, and thought like, okay, that's you know that I can gain something from this. That's also because I I uh, I don't really focus on it, and maybe there's something to gain from that. I I, I imagine there's probably amateurs who give off decent decent life tells, um, but I I don't know. I feel like uh, it's also very, very easy to go wrong. 
and I've heard many examples of this as well from like, you know friends that thought they had a lifestyle and oh I, he was strong uh, anyway and I called down something ridiculous you know like this kind of stuff happen, happens as well so I think it's also it's very easy to to think you you have some certain tell and, and you actually don't uh, and the way I approach a game is I try to play I, I approach it mostly from my own game or like my own range you know like uh like the technical side of it so I, I try to play a very solid strategy and i don't think live reads really play too big of a role in that um but yeah some people swear by it and I, I'm, not, I'm not a not a huge believer and i think if you can manage to not give off a lot a lot of lifestyles um then you're usually going to be going to be okay in these uh in these live fields yeah i saw a hand very recently where I think it was Helmut jamming in Jack Five offsuit against Pretentious Aces. You, you have you have you seen that hand? Oh, I, and uh, then he said, "Oops, thought I had a read." So that you you're telling this that like, yeah, I saw a hand recently. Someone said this to me. Uh, also, like Helmut said that about Pretentious. Yeah, so it was it was I think it was like a blind bet or something with Pretentious where Helmut raised big blind three bet and he just ripped in like Jack Six offsuit or something, and Pretentious just snapped with Aces, and then yeah. Helmut was, "Oops, read was wrong." Yeah, I think it's also, I, had to, I had to think about this one. I think it's also a little bit disrespectful to even claim that a guy who plays like no split stakes for 10 plus years to even claim that you can have a read on a guy like this. Mm-hmm. Like this would basically mean that he's just giving away stuff. I mean, this is just, I mean, I, I think personally, uh, I don't think he actually had a read. I think he, he just wanted uh, to go home. Well, I, I think it's for Helmut, like he has a certain brand, like may, it looks cool if it works, if it doesn't work, okay, whatever. Yeah, like, you oh, know. So, so you're, you're arguing that maybe this is long-term plus EV? Uh, well, for it, it take be, everything in consideration? Uh, for, for, for him, like he has a certain brand. Like I, I think if he, if he, he jumps there and, and the guy falls, I don't know, let's say king four off or something, he has, a, he, it's probably going to be, uh, you know, it, it's going to increase his brand, right? Like the value of his brand. Oh. So maybe, I mean, maybe sure. he's he's la- he's he's the last one laughing. We're all like, "What the idiot gem that is!" But he's not a picture. I'm not sure if that's something that Helmut considers. Like maybe I'm actually actually overestimating him here. Maybe, when I see him play, I, I don't feel like he makes these kind of considerations. But who knows? You know, like he's like he did well for himself. So you gotta respect the hustle, I guess. But he, I don't think he's a very good tournament player, to, to put it mildly. Actually, uh, a point that you you mentioned in terms of. Uh... When I asked you about the lifestyles, you mentioned so you try to play more from like a strategy with the solver. I think this is also a point that uh, where people might misuse a solver or the power of a solver. They use solver or library of sims to look up a hand. So basically, you know, the player bounce and they look up the hand, but they're not using it to think about what is the strategy that I'm trying to play in a certain situation. I think this is actually a spot where people uh, definitely misuse or underutilize the power of a solver because I think from what it sounds like here, you use more a solver as like your assistant to build solid strategies in a certain spot that you can always just fall back on. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like your your baseline. Your uh, that's your starting point. Like that's the fun, fundament of your of how how I play. And then there's a lot of room for yeah adjustments, um, interpretation, this kind of thing. But like you have kind of like a certain uh, base layer from your strategy, and this. I think it's very good to keep improving this layer uh, because that's that's kind of you cannot fall uh, under like lower than this layer like like there's always a certain amount of level of play that you can have and I think 
the higher this level is, uh, the better you're going to perform. And obviously, there's a lot of things, adjustments, etc., that are, come on top of that. But I think there should always be some kind of base of uh, just having a generally good fundamental understanding of the game. Yeah, I would say I experienced the same when I started to work with solvers, like my C game improved. Basically, like you said, yeah, exactly. I couldn't fall lower than the, the theoretical foundation that I laid. Exactly, yeah. Adam, I mean, there's many questions that I could ask, but actually I wanted to ask you one thing that I personally then struggle with, and I uh, Jans mentioned it as well, which is uh, jet lag or sleeping fatigue, especially when playing live tournaments. Uh, for example, then I remember a live tournament that I played, which actually was Master Classics, Amsterdam, uh, one of the few tournaments that I sometimes play. I remember I made day three, but that was accumulated two nights of very bad sleep because I find it very, first of all, normally I'm in bed at like 10, 11, and then suddenly we have to play until three. So mm -hmm. my brain is all confused and I'm laying in bed and cards are flying through my head and I cannot, I cannot fall asleep. I sleep very light. Then the next day, you know, one night, okay. But then I remember the next day, I was also very unlucky. Like the fire alarm in my hotel went off twice. So I was like, what the fuck? So I had like only a couple hours of sleep and I'm playing a game that I'm not used to playing. So, you know, you were talking about this foundation. I definitely fell somewhere below that. We're playing live at some point. I made some mistakes with throwing wrong chips in just from sleep fatigue. I didn't realize the blind level has already gone up. Uh, all that type of mistakes. So how can I, how can we, everyone, perform more optimally in live poker? I, I've tried around with, you know, you want to focus and then like write one hour or something before it stops to take like not a sleeping pill, but you know, like some supplements to calm me down or something. But then again, in the last hour, then maybe I'm already getting a little bit foggy. I don't know. It's very hard to go from I need to be on the top of my game to let's go to sleep. Mm. Yeah, so a host of problems there. Uh, starting from bad schedule, lack of sleep, jet lag, low stress tolerance due to being fatigued. So uh, with all the problems you mentioned there, I think the most important variable was get on routine and a oh. good sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you would just say not enter in the first place. <laughs> oh, but that, that's also that's also a solution. That's a, another another one. But yeah, I think get on routine is a real big one. Obviously, uh, anyone traveling, jet lag's a big obstacle. Whether you find east or west, there's kind of different strategies to get optimally on the right sleep schedule. I think like you've touched on in Ben Heath, there's like arriving two days, three days before to allow your body's clock to adjust is very sensible. Then, as you mentioned, switching off from poker becomes a challenge. I think uh, John's mentioned. Uh, like when he wins a tournament, it has a big MDT score. It's hard to switch off because you've got that adrenaline pumping. So coming up with a couple mechanisms to uh, lower that adrenaline, allow yourself to um, unwind. Generally, go with some sort of walk. When you've got adrenaline in your body, it's a heightened emotion. There's a lot of your physiology is activated. You want to use that to move the body, to calm yourself. Often the mind's racing still with all the adrenaline in your, in your mind. So finding some way to kind of calm yourself down. Meditation works for some people, doesn't work very well for others. In that scenario, cold showers can work. I know for myself, if I've got things on my mind, having a cold shower, then a warm shower, like cold contrast is cold, can ease your thoughts as well. Also journaling, if you've got lots in your mind, you can't sleep, write them, write things down so it gets out of your head. But yeah, I think the main kind of variables you touched on are all around scheduling. It's all around get on routine, being able to switch off in the, in the evenings and then wake up and be on schedule in the mornings. If that's chaotic, then you've got to realize, okay, in this current environment, I am at, I'm at a low tolerance level. My stress tolerance is very low. I had five hours sleep and things are going to annoy me more than usual. My emotional tolerance is going to be less. I'm going to make some erratic mistakes, most likely compared to usual. 
What can I do to uh, mitigate some of those? Taking more breaks, maybe not playing in the high buy-ins if you were down, down to that day. So uh, yeah, everything else becomes like damage limitation once the kind of schedule's being messed up, so to speak. Yeah, I guess aligning expectations is already quite big, right? Because then I was also kind of on tilt of the fact that I made all these mistakes, which, you know, I guess you could say were predict predictable. They could have happened. But then if my expectations were wrong, I was expecting myself to play well. Then I guess you know you kind of get tilt from tilt, sort of. There was a there was a funny uh, moment in uh, during Triton where uh, I met day two of the hundred k with like um, I think it was the hundred k where I don't know I, I didn't have a good stack, but anyway uh, like I think it was the first hand <laughs> like of day two I was under the gun I had king a two so I had to like think okay do I want to open this or not like looked a little bit around at the stacks and everything and I decided to open and I and I I looked at the big blind and it was three chips. Um, I don't even know what I was thinking, but I I think I raised to 7k or something. And and the big one was actually 15k. So and everyone at the table was looking to me. I announced 7k and everyone was like, what, what is this guy talking about? And obviously I, I was operating on like you know five hours of sleep a night or something maximum. And, and at some point it gets you and you make these mistakes. And obviously I, like it's very costly in, in this. I ended up losing a big pot of lines who was in the big in the small line with fucking king three off and made made two pair. Uh, which wouldn't have happened if I just would have raised, right? So it's it's really costly at these stakes. These small things that change the way you execute can really end up uh, combining to like big, um, you know, dollar uh, mistakes, kind of in, like. In general, I would say also in tournaments, that's a very big difference with tournaments and cash. I think in cash game, you make you make way more money with your A game because you know you can, for example, play two hours, take a break, come back, try to play your A game again. Whereas in tournaments, it's such long days. Your C game, I think having a strong C game, or like I said, in live tournaments, you're fatigued. I mean, Ben was also saying that in live stops, you know, he maybe sleeps like five hours a night. So I've, I would say C game makes you way more money in tournaments than it does in cash games. Yeah, yeah, you just are forced to operate uh, on your C game from time to time. And uh, it's definitely worth a lot if your C game is at, at, a, at a certain level, especially uh, because it mostly happens, I think, during live tournaments, because online... Yeah, like especially live, like you're sometimes just forced to play day twos on very little sleep, for example, and it's it's very high stakes. And if uh, if then the level you operate on is very low, it's gonna cost you a lot. In the yeah, long you way. play for what eight hours on average, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I play I play four hour, five hour sessions max, and then I'm completely fried. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's a, one of the reasons is that I don't like to play tournaments from start. Live is is obviously because I. It is not necessarily my field of expertise playing this deep, but I think the fatigue is definitely a big one. Like I tried and I, I late rushed everything because, uh, and I just skipped at least like four or five levels because there's just not much reason. Like I'm going to be completely tired at the end when the stakes are highest and I'm going to make mistakes and they're going to cost me, or I can just like skip the first few levels. I'm not making much money in those anyway. Uh, rest a little bit, try to get my mind off of poker, like do whatever will help me to perform later. So uh yeah this this was really helpful for me and i, I mean especially with uh being being on you know, jet lag and not a lot of sleep it was a no-brainer but i think in general this approach suits me pretty well uh but yeah there are some other guys like uh, a lot of tried and regulars play everything from the start um and yeah maybe they're just in better shape or like they're used to it you know like there's all kinds of reasons to, to play from the start uh, but it's definitely um, a skill i guess that i don't uh, have yet to be able to do that yeah, very interesting. I, I haven't heard of um, late regen as like a fatigue management kind of strategy before. But yeah, it makes complete sense. Like obviously, if you feel like your edge is 
later in the tournaments, you're a bit jet lagged going in. Why play like an extra three, four hours with your low edge? Then when it really matters, you're going to be like extra fatigued and it's going to have an impact there as well. So yeah, it's a, sounds like a no brain on that scenario and a, yeah, kind of small strategy overall. Yeah, there's obviously uh, exceptions. Like when the field is exceptionally soft, uh, then you might want to be in there from the start because you can win a lot. Um, yeah, like an EPT main event or something. Yeah, if, for example. But still, like I think this, I think a lot of people underestimate the fatigue factor. Like because EPTs run for five days, and on the fifth day, when you play for a lot of money, obviously you don't get there very often on average. But when you do, it's very important to be in the best shape you can be, like mentally, physically, whatever. And uh, I think the hours add up. Um, yeah, so. I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a factor that a lot of people don't really consider too much. But I think uh, I, I thought about this, and I, I think it made it made it, it made sense for me to do it like this uh, during Triton. And it depends a little bit on on different factors as well. But I, I think it's not something that people think about uh, often enough in tournaments. Yeah, I agree. I've never heard it mentioned in the kind of fatigue management context. So yeah, it does make sense though if you think of playing long hours, long days, the compounding effect of those extra hours when the money really matters, how sharp you feel. If you feel like you've got great endurance and you're, that's kind of your skill set, then awesome play from the start. But any factors that have impacted that or it's not a kind of strength of yours to play the super long sessions, then yeah, play to your strengths and yeah, the late regen strategy and that scenario sounds sounds good. I guess maybe also just, if you... Maybe old. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> maybe I'm just old and not fit and... And everyone who listens to this is like, dude, come on, just sit down and start. What are you talking about? It could also be, but I mean, you, you have to find what works for you. And, and I feel like this uh, suit me, suits me pretty well. But it's also a thing, right? Online people who just usually max late rack as like an overall strategy. I guess also it saves you a part of the trick to study. If you just always late rack, you never have to study any deep spots. So, you know, yeah. half of the no, trees no, are done. I mean, um, yeah, this is, I think, uh, uh, like, uh, this is a big part of online entities, uh, mainly because late reg is very often open for a long time. So this means uh, your stack has a certain ICM value because a lot of people are already busted. Um, so if you if you can reg like with 50% of the field already busted, your stack is just going to be worth more because you're going to be closer to the money. So that's why in a lot of instances, especially on GG, where the late reg is usually open for very long, uh, it, it's really worth a lot to get that late max late reg bullet in, and uh, obviously. So basically, the starting chips that you get for your buy-in is worth more than if you, if you late uh, yeah. Like there's certain ways you can estimate like the the worth of your stack, and uh, usually it's already like one point something x the the amount you bought in for automatically when you buy it. And even if you only have ten bigs, it doesn't matter. Like there's just certain ICM value that you can give to your stack that is worth more than your buy-in, and then it doesn't even account for like you know, edge or anything like that. Oh yeah, exactly. Because then edge, obviously the, the softer the field, like you said, the bigger the chances of you accumulating more chips that the, the average chip sec that you will have at the moment that late direct closes will have a higher EV. And then when the field gets less soft, so harder then that EV is probably greater. Yeah, but in, in live tournaments it's a little bit less of a factor because uh, late reg is just not open that long uh, wow. compared to online usually. Uh, so yeah, the closer you are to in the money, the more this late reg strategy really becomes a, a thing. Um, and live, in, in life, it's just not really a thing. And I hope at some point online, it will also uh, become less of a thing uh, when sites start to realize it's just, because it's just not a lot of fun if like, you know, I don't know, like 50 guys join at the last second and, and everyone has 10 bigs. And like, it's just, that's not a very enjoyable, I think for amateurs, not a very enjoyable thing to have happened in, in their tournament that they play, right? Uh, so and it's also just kind of cheating the system a little bit. Um, so I, 
yeah, I, I hope they do something about this. But the sites also have an incentive to keep the late reg open for a long time because it means more players. More, more players. Um, yeah, giving people a long time to re-enter is just generating more rake. So I don't really see it changing unless they realize that it could mean have some effect on the ecosystem. But sites are generally not very good at that kind of thing. They just apparently usually go for the quick rake grab. I mean, we see this now with GG and uh, in the cash uh, environment. So. I, I, I'm not very hopeful for that, but who knows? Maybe maybe they change it up at some point. So, yeah. yeah, so I'd like to do a few uh, reflection questions now. I know, be mindful of the time. I know it's been quite a while already. But yeah, I'd like to look back on your career and see if we can get any wisdom or lessons that you've learned for the audience to, to learn from. So uh, first question is, what would you say is the most important lesson poker has taught you, looking back on your career as a whole? Um, what's the most important I guess for me personally, it would be that freedom is very important. What does freedom mean to you? Uh, well, yeah, just just uh, yeah, being very free in uh, in making your own decisions, like living the life, uh, yeah, like in a way that you want to live it, uh, not having to answer to anybody, uh, that kind of thing. That that's what freedom means to me, and uh, that's what I appreciate. I think probably the most about my poker career. Mm -hmm. Have you always felt poker has give you freedom from the start? Or has it been recently when you've been in a better financial situation that freedom has been apparent? Um, yeah, well, probably not from the very start, but as, as soon as I started to make like some serious money with it, yeah. So like I would say the last 10 years, for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any lessons you had to learn the hard way in your poker career? Um, hmm, that's a good one. Um... Cannot think of anything from the top of my mind. Uh, uh, I guess uh, life poker pays off in the end. <laughs> that definitely was uh, the hard way. It took me many years. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. Yeah. What would you say, in your opinion, is one of the most, or some of the most important skills or character traits for a poker player to develop? So uh, just to give a bit of segue on that, I think for yourself, you've obviously got good work ethic, you've got great emotion control, you don't, um, yeah, your, your stress tolerance seems very good. Any sort of traits you feel like looking at other poker players, or looking at the poker player poker market as a whole, are important traits to uh, to develop? Yeah, I mean, I think just general competitiveness, and this is maybe not something you can really develop or teach. So I'm not sure how useful it is, but I think this is a good, very good trait to have. Um, other than that, I mean, yeah, like risk tolerance, I guess, is a big one as well that some people struggle with. Me included, by the way. I'm not. I don't think I'm a huge risk taker, but. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure where I exactly am on the spectrum, but that, that that's one that I, I would think is uh, is very good to be pretty risk tolerant. And then um, what else? Yeah, I mean, yeah, just try to uh, have, enjoy what you do and like try to organize your life in a way that you enjoy what you do and that you enjoy your day-to-day -day, uh, process. And if I, I'm not sure if that's that's not necessarily a trade, but that's, that's definitely very, very important, I think. And uh, something that maybe some people struggle with. 100%, yeah. I think you can cultivate more curiosity, more learning, more enjoyment into your days, which changes your, your relationship with what you're doing. So yeah, it might not be a trade as such, but it's definitely a kind of approach you can uh, take into poker. So it's interesting risk tolerance. I think it's a very interesting perspective or thing to touch on for poker players because it does vary a lot from player to player. And I'm always interested how 
players improve their risk tolerance? Because from my perspective, most players going into poker don't have a very high risk tolerance. Maybe there's some exceptions who just like don't really care about money and they're just all, all the way through the career they can take kind of, kind of big shots. But first, a lot of poker players, the, the money side at first becomes quite the scary parts of it. And it takes a while to build your tolerance to certain levels. So uh, for yourself, is there anything that you've done to build your risk tolerance or is there anything that you feel like helps with being able to tolerate more risk? Like for now, obviously you're playing the Triton series, you're going playing 30 Ks. Is there anything you've done in your career that's helped you to play uh, bigger tournaments? Well, actually quite recently I got more into, um, because I've never really uh, done much with bankroll management because I have I was always involved from the start pretty comfortably. So it was never really an issue, but uh, like more recently I, I've been um, uh, educated a little bit more by, by friends uh, about like, it's very important to size your your binds correctly or like if you have a very good spot uh, to make money you should you really put a big part of your bankroll into that right and so yeah just certain uh, like you can basically estimate like how many buyers you need for certain tournaments depending on field size and roi so obviously roi is a little bit hard to estimate but you can ballpark it and then field size is uh, obviously a given uh, and that yeah like that that helps you, for example, with deciding how much action to sell and how much of yourself you should take and like what kind of tournaments you should fire and what tournaments are better to skip for optimal bankroll growth. And this is something that I never really got into, but I, I definitely focused a lot more on recently and, and I kind of opened my eyes on on like, you know, like there's no reason to not fire more bullets in, in like 10k, 25k, whatever, because if you're rolled for it, like why wouldn't you do it? It, it should be optimal for, for bankroll growth in the long run. And you know that's that's basically your goal, right? So um, that that's something that that helped my risk tolerance in that regard because I used to feel like if I lost fifty k on a Sunday or something, I would feel sometimes pretty bad. Like you know, it is a lot of money, but that's not the way you should look at it. You shouldn't think about it like, okay, I could have bought X or or Y from this. Uh, you should just think about like, okay, I made a good investment. This time it didn't pay out, but you know, like in the long run, this is optimal to keep firing this big and being aware of that definitely helps i think with the money side of risk tolerance like general risk tolerance in game or something that's i'm not sure how how people can improve on that uh, yeah it's not something that i maybe necessarily need to improve on I, i'm not sure like maybe but um, that's not not something i'm working on currently but like money wise for sure um, yeah i like that it was almost like a investor's mindset where you're trying to come with the optimal kind of betting frequency or betting kind of bets to put in in terms of buy-ins in order to get the maximum return in terms of bankroll growth. And when you can like be like that objective and almost just break poker down into those variables, this is my ROI, this is the field size, this is the expected value of the tournament. It becomes almost like a, you can detach the emotion side. It's like, I should play these tournaments because these are the, the most valuable. Now, obviously there's an emotional side that can make that challenging to execute that strategy. Like every investor in the world probably struggles with some degree to uh execute the strategy they should be doing when emotions get involved sometimes. But for you, it doesn't seem like that's an issue. Once you know what you should be doing, you can execute at a high level. Yeah. I also yeah. find it interesting when... Sorry, sorry, go. No, no, yeah. It, like, knowing knowing that it's optimal kind of takes the uncertainty out of it. Um, yeah, you could still obviously be overestimating your ROI or something like this, but, like, given the information I have, like, if, if, if I think this is the optimal approach, then I feel a lot better about... I mean, I don't really care anymore about losing X amount of money because I know, like, I put my money in good you know, and, and the rest is up to variance and at some point it will pay off. Uh, and, and knowing that gives you certain peace of mind, uh, yeah, in terms of risk taking, I think. Yeah, I think that's huge, actually. I haven't heard many players 
speak that holistically about like kind of zooming out that far and kind of think about all the tournaments they play in terms of kind of the expected returns on them and then getting a good strategy for maybe weeks and even maybe a whole series that comes up and what the kind of tournaments you should play so you know your risk kind of how much you're risking how much the return should be and basically where you stand before you go in and then you go and go right well this is the investment i'm going to make there's risks involved let's go that's actually my strategy if you obviously make a lot more mistakes than you plan then maybe your roi was lower but in general like you said you could ballpark your roi with some sort of brackets around it to uh, get some kind of boundaries but i think that's a big part of be able to tolerate risk because then it, the the numbers are clear before you bega began. I think a lot of people they'll put themselves in unnecessary situa situations. So, for example, I could be working with somebody who's going to a series and he's he's nervous already that the series plays a lot higher. He's been playing bigger buy-ins and he's already worried like, oh, if I go on a bad run and I lose like ten k, twenty k, my roll, this is really going to hurt me right now. So he's not really sure of his risk tolerance. He doesn't really want to go on a downswing right now. He thinks the upsides could be big, but he hasn't stopped to think what's the kind of trade-offs of this this roll, and therefore it all becomes all messy. And then all of a sudden, it's just money flying around everywhere. He's like, he comes out the end of it going, God, I feel, yeah, almost like I got dragged around a bit. But your approach would, yeah, help mitigate a lot of those. And, and I think in that regard, like to uh, what you mentioned, like so, uh, I think tournament players are not always very good at like game selection. Like, for example, if like playing huge fields with relatively low ROI is very bad for bankroll growth. Like, uh, you just need a huge bankroll to be able to play these games, like theoretically. And I think people love big fields right they really love having like these huge prizes up top but this is not necessarily optimal very often i think it's uh, very often it's, it's a lot better to play small fields for bigger buy-ins and um, i think that's something that i didn't realize often enough um you know before pretty recently and uh, I, yeah i got educated by, uh, by others on that a little bit and i think uh, that's if you if that's not something as a especially as a tournament player that you think have thought about then it's it should definitely be something that you should look into like try to optimize optimize what what games you play and, and try to size your bets correctly so and, and then i mean by bets i mean if you have sell action for example make sure that you keep the right amount of action don't sell too much i i've definitely sold too much in the past where i could have kept way more of my action uh because i just didn't really think of it i just sold whatever i thought felt felt comfortable with right like the action that, that uh, we keep but it's way better to approach it from a more um, scientific point of view i think and just really try to size your bets correctly okay i i according to my bankroll my roi in the field size i should sell this so that's what i'm selling for optimal bankroll growth and uh yeah that's that's something uh, that took me a long time i guess to uh, to get into but uh, it's it's definitely um worth a lot i think in the long run yeah, I speak to a lot of MTT players and I definitely don't hear them speak this way very often in terms of thinking like the large fields being obviously the higher variance and potentially selling more action those. And I think you mentioned the, the, the small fields are kind of the way, small fields, higher buy-ins should be where you're steering towards. And I think a lot of players would be the opposite. They're like, oh, well, the big fields, that's where they get the highest ROI. That's where it's the softest. Yeah, it, 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 like usually uh, field, field size and ROI are usually correlated. Like obviously you get you get higher ROI in, in, in very big fields, but... Uh, the variance is just so big because all the money is going to be on top and you're just not going to end up on top very often uh so yeah that, that's something that i think the human brain is just not very good at they oh, people just always are attracted to big prizes and not really thinking about probabilities or or like long-term bankroll growth so yeah if, if you didn't look into that like it took me 10 years or something or, or more to uh, to be able to uh, to actually grasp that and or, or like it never really interested me i guess um but yeah now now that i uh, i know about this kind of approach it's um it definitely helps me i, I think and it, it should help everyone i think
Yeah, I think players watching this, especially the MTT guys, which would be a lot of them, can probably stop and go, right, it's actually how my approach and my bankroll growth. Because I love, like, just when you gamify stuff, when you make it a game and you know the rules of the game and you're trying to get a clear outcome. So a bankroll is like, okay, grow the bankroll in the best way possible. What is my way to do that? You've already got a certain number of bets, as you said. How do I optimize these bets to uh, to grow my bankroll in the best way with the lowest variance and the, yeah, we'll take the most risk on. So uh, once you get those clear, you have a strategy that you're executing on there and it just takes away a lot of the kind of yeah, unknowns and uncertainty that you mentioned, which allows you to execute strategy, which I think in life in general is just a great, a great thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Gamify is, is a very good uh, approach. It works for me at least, yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. I watched a podcast recently by Jocko Willick, who's like an ABCL, and it was about gamifying your life and basically making all the kind of things you're pursuing in life into a game. Really interesting. But yeah, it kind of talks about like your career should be a game, your finances a game, your health a game. And basically, we're playing these games of trying to get better at something, trying to achieve an outcome. And the more we can gamify it and make it like clear rules, clear objectives, clear metrics, clear strategies I'm executing on, we're quite good at, it's, at keeping to it and, and executing. But very often we're on the field of a game and we don't know the rules. We're playing the health game, but everyone's like, no one's like optimizing. We're playing the financial game, but people are just like, oh, well, how do I play this one? So uh, we end up in all these like kind of games that we were not forced to play, but we play just because kind of society involves us in them and then we play the ultimate game like you know, the supreme game he calls it which is to be happy to have a good life so uh, sometimes we get too zoomed in on one game like the financial game of money 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 and we forget oh wait a second am i happy right now am i enjoying my life no oh wait a second let's let's make sure i'm optimizing for the big game so uh, yeah it was a nice podcast anyway if anyone wants to check that out but yeah i think gamifying stuff and making things a fun pursuit all poker players that i've spoke to competitive like games like optimizing towards an outcome so uh make your life more towards that and i think it'll help with bankroll help with yeah a lot of things uh, i really like that approach yeah, yeah for sure yeah cool all right final question from me kind of an open one but what is your definition of success uh, just being happy i think this this is uh yeah that's what that would be my number one metric if you're if you're happy then you're you're successful yeah, I love this one because I thought about this one a lot in like probably the last five years. I used to like stop and think about this question quite frequently, but come with different answers. Now it's it's always happiness. It can't be anything else. And it every time my mind starts to make it something else, it's like happiness just wins like every time. So uh, I love it when like someone's just got a clear definition for that because it just shows, yeah, it shows, shows a sense of wisdom. The hard, the hard part is figuring out what exactly makes you happy. But I think if, if you keep in mind always that the goal is, is happiness, then yeah, and, and the game is to figure out what makes you happy. I guess um, that's not that's a little bit less easy to answer, but yeah, the end goal always happens. And that's how I would describe success. Yeah. yeah, less easy, but also like when it's happiness is the end goal, there's many paths, many paths to success. So like, it takes a bit of pressure off. You don't have to be the millionaire and have the amazing lifestyle. You don't have to have the everything figured out relationship-wise. There's many paths to happiness. So I think there's a, and there's maybe not a definitive answer. There's not like, oh, I won the game. I'm, I'm ultimately happy. It's a, it's a moving target, so to speak. But yeah, I think it's a, it's an all start we need to have. And I think sometimes as poker players, I speak with poker players pretty much every day and very often goal oriented, achievement based, want to get somewhere. And when you get so into that kind of external pursuit, you can lose sight sometimes that happiness is the goal. You almost like you put happiness to one side until you achieve the metric. I think sometimes just to bring happiness back to the, the front of the equation, like, right, it's always about happiness. Let's not put happiness to one side for three years until I've made X amount of money. Let's keep happiness at the forefront and then let's go through the, the, the journey with that way. I think, listen to your story throughout this conversation, we can definitely see that happiness and having a good life and enjoying your life has been a, a massive part of your progression as well. So it's been a, something you've lived by as well. For sure, yeah. Cool. All right, awesome. So we're reaching close to the three-hour mark. Rene, how about yourself? Any further questions you want to ask? You know, it's interesting with this happy thing because often, 
like we are happiest when we're on the pursuit of something that forces us to develop. So that's a bit, you know, con contradicting if you're only focused on trying to pursue something, but at the same time, the pursuit is often what gives us a certain amount of happiness. You see my I point there? That's the, the classic thing of like reaching your goal and then you like fall into this black hole of, you know, oh, I've reached it. And now I thought this would be the holy grail. And it turns out actually it was just the, the process of getting there that gave me enjoyment. And now I, I reach it and I don't know what to do anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, uh, but luckily in poker, you're, you're never done uh, with, with goals, I guess. Or, I mean, it's, I, I, don't, I don't see this happening anytime soon. So uh, yeah, the, the, the road to, to the holy grail is so long that uh, it will never end. Uh, so I don't see this, uh, this pitfall for me anytime soon. But uh, yeah, it's something that some people struggle with, I think. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like, for example, let's say you put a certain monetary goal. So let's say you retire from poker. And then what? Like if 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 you're not gonna do anything that that you know stimulates you intellectually or you know in poker you feel good because it's something that you enjoy it's something that you're good at, then you know sometimes players go back to playing poker just because of you know the way it makes them feel it makes them feel happy. Yeah, uh, mm. yeah. I mean uh, that's that's a, a, a question that I have to answer at some point. Like because obviously it's unlikely I think that I will play play poker professionally for the rest of my life uh, so at some point i'm gonna have to answer the question of like what am i gonna do with my life after poker but I, i'm also very confident in like being able to figure it out then and i think there's always there always stuff comes on your path and you know like yeah, yeah exactly when something else comes to replace poker like something that you feel intellectually challenged at you know where every day you stand up you feel like you're you're developing as a person you're being challenged that's when you feel most happy now obviously you know you shouldn't get completely absorbed by that as we talked about many times in this podcast there's other things that give you a certain amount of joy as well and happiness but that should be part of it if you take that away like nobody wants to be on in a yeah on a holiday for example a holiday sometimes sounds cool oh you know i'm on the bahamas white beach coconuts and after a week it's boring yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. you know or at least you know People that are often in the poker world, you know, we're wired in a certain way that after a week, everyone is like, okay, get me out of this beach. I want, I want, I want to go do something. It's usually the hype. The hype leading up to it is 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 sometimes more fun. Uh, and this is with, with some holidays, this is the case. Like you you you're thinking about this this trip that you're gonna make for months, and then you're actually on the beach, and you're like uh, after a few days, you're like, okay, yeah, I mean, you know, I I would love to get back sit in my office and grind it out or whatever or like study or whatever you do in life you know it, it this yeah it's a uh, it's very uh, recognizable what you described i think yeah so that's the thing right don't fall for the trap because that's what you mentioned you work so long towards a goal and then you expect that goal to make you feel happy that's kind of the trap right the happiness is in in the process so if you don't don't put too much too much emphasis on the end goal and then i will feel a certain way because then it will always lead to yeah, exactly. lead, lead to being disappointment. Yeah, exactly. um, I have a last question for you, which would be, what would you like the main takeaway to be from this conversation for our audience listening? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we just kind of summarized it. Uh, that's, that's what I would say. And don't play 10Ks on GG. No, but seriously, like just just uh, try to enjoy your day to day the, the day to day stuff that you do, and if you if you don't do have that currently, uh, try to really reevaluate that. And um, yeah, and I, I guess poker wise, I mean we we've, we've walked through the whole uh, through everything, I guess. But yes, uh, 
if you're trying to improve in, uh, on poker, like study the right thing, study, or make sure that you study methods are right, and uh, and make sure that you enjoy it. And then I think for basically everyone, it should you should be able to achieve uh, achieve a lot in poker. It's it's just a lot about having the right methods and then putting their work in. And I think most people uh, could achieve uh, almost anything in poker. Then. Yeah, and consistently show up. I remember that one. That one was very yeah, part, important. Part of, part of the work ethic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Any final words you would like to share before we closing this up, Jans? Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I enjoyed this. It was, uh, it was fun. And uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, after my next uh, try and uh, when I can be back. <laughs> nice. Okay. We'll, 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 take, we'll take you up on that. I'll, I'll probably skip uh, the one in uh, Cyprus, though. though. So it's it's uh, going to be the end of the year. So maybe then we'll have some actually something to talk about. Because I think if I would go to Cyprus, ship, ship an attorney and show up again on the podcast, then uh, it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be yeah, much we'll- stuff. There, there will be less to cover. Why, why, why did you decide not to go? I would like usually. Uh, I can. Well, I you know, you're, you're in a winning mood. You're like ah, Cyprus yeah, in the corner. I haven't 100 decided, but um, uh, that's going to be scoop for sure. Uh, they didn't release the schedule, so I'm not sure what it will look like. But GG usually also runs something, so the EV of online is might even be higher. And then uh, I already booked Vegas for six weeks, so I think uh, if I tell my girlfriend that I'm going to go for two weeks to, to Cyprus and then right after six weeks to Vegas, uh, she'll, she'll put me in the streets. So uh, <laughs> I have some, some other stuff to consider as well. But uh, and, and there's only so much live poker, seriously, that I can take in a year. Um, even though Triton is very enjoyable, like if, if I have to, right after I have to go to Vegas for six weeks. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I guess also going from the Triton treatment to the World Series treatment. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're setting yourself up to be uh, frustrated. Oh, Triton, everything is better. Yeah, no, that's that's why I also uh, I really I'm gonna try to be very very selective in Vegas, like not play any like you know it might be a little bit uh, yeah I might be tempted to play like a random two k or one k or something like this, and I'm really gonna try to stay away from that because it's not. As enjoyable of an experience and then if you play a lot of these tournaments in in this period you're gonna probably burn out because it's just if you do something that you don't really enjoy yeah there's not there's only so much you can take from that so um yeah i'm gonna try to be really selective travel around a little bit like maybe see la san francisco grand canyon whatever uh and uh and mix it up a little bit and not play that much poker over, over the six weeks so um but yeah like you said if you go from tribe to vegas it's a it's a bit, bit of a drop off so that that would also not work out too well i think All right, well, then I want to wish you best of luck in Vegas. Thank you so much, um, and uh, have a good one, guys. Thank you a lot, Jans, for coming on and sharing a bunch of wisdom on the pod. Let's go over some main takeaways. We already heard Jans' main takeaway. Adam, what's your main takeaway from this podcast? It was a really fun conversation, and I think, yeah, hopefully the audience learned a lot. Myself, I found lots of things interesting. What the first one I wrote down was the identity switch that he made when he decided to become a pro. And this was very interesting because he'd already binked the Sunday million and won a 200k score. He then had like five years of kind of, let's say, plodding along a little bit, grinding, but also going to university without like taking poker too seriously. And then there's a very definitive moment where he said, I'm going pro. And I really think that we can always, in any moment we can decide, I'm taking this seriously now. I'm stepping into a new version of myself. And from that moment, he changed his approach. He became a professional version of himself almost overnight. And I think it's really interesting how powerful that, that is and how often we can use this if we needed to. So uh, anytime you're struggling to make changes in your life, you can create a new identity and step into that almost like 
instantaneously if you really wanted to. So find that interesting. Next one was using competition as fuel. I think going into this conversation, it was funny that he initially turned down this, the invite because he didn't really get wasn't into mindset. Um, so I was interested to know how that was going to unravel in terms of the, the kind of the, the stories he was telling. And yeah, one of the things I found very interesting was the using competition as fuel. And when he's losing, things aren't going well. He gets over quite quickly. I think he, might, he said he shakes it off and doesn't have much of a, a, a kind of lingering effect. But then he uses that as fuel to study harder and to crush the guys the next day. So uh, this allows him to play high volume, not get too down on himself, to uh, yeah, basically not have too much kind of turbulence around bad results, which is yeah, really, really uh, big superpower. And then he mentioned a lot throughout the conversation, I think, was work ethic and consistency, consistency in particular. And obviously, he's just won a big, big score. They tried him recently, and it's very easy from the outside to go, oh, wow, amazing. Like, look at you winning, like, million-dollar scores. Really good. But at the same time, like, he's he's been patient. Like, he's been in these games over and over. He even mentioned, like, probably until the trade-in, which is literally 15 years into his career, he's probably been running bad at high stakes. And he's still, like, showing up and over and over. So uh, to not be demoralized, to continually be there showing up, some of the factors that he contributed to that were the fact that he enjoys the game so much. He's always trying to get better. He's got a competitive drive. But yeah, I think that we can't underestimate how important it is to be consistent. And sometimes consistency means... You show up in 15 years until you get that big bink. So yeah, they're the main ones that uh, kids are for me. How about yourself, Rene? Yeah, an important one there was as well the, the closing loops part. So for example, he didn't bring any negativity from a previous session next to the next session because all the spots that he was uncertain of, he would try to review. And then basically he would learn from them and get motivated by them. Or let's say, for example, he was a bit tilted. He would give himself some room to feel sad about it or angry about it and then it was just done and that i think helped him every time put in the volume every time right because the tilt doesn't really accumulate uh he actually all the way in the beginning when he was talking i think i asked him like if vietnam how was it and how, how did you do it he said win flips easy takeaway right there for the mtt players out there um in terms of technical i think we had a couple of very good points uh in general people are too aggressive uh, not not aggressive enough and they fall too much. Usually actually these things go hand in hand because you fall too much because your pool is not too aggressive. And this is a trend you see apparently both in entities and in cash. The lower you go, the more passive people are and the, and, uh, and the more foldy people are. So if you're a lower stakes player, that's usually a leak that you will have. Uh, he then also talked a lot about study, study, study. We heard the word study a lot. And he talked about, yeah, it's very important to in, invest your time in the right things. And kind of the formula I came up is frequency of the spot, very important, and EV of the spot. And for frequency, I think he said that 80% of the studying is pre-flop, which obviously in MTTs is very important. If you're a cash game player, don't invest 80% of your time in pre-flop. Okay, I would not recommend that. And then he also talked about high EV spots. So those would be ICM spots that he mentioned. That's when, that's when the money starts to really matter, right? This was kind of his study... Uh, study approach and then he later also talked about heads up why then in this case heads up would not fall under that in terms of frequency spot let's say you play uh cash in position as initial razor big blind out of position as the caller single race spots those are going to be like the most frequent situations that you're going to be in obviously preflop will be most uh frequent so make sure to uh, nail those not too easy to fix in terms of like coming up with a static strategy Obviously, to then be more more flexible and adjust where possible, that requires a little bit more of experience. But frequency of spots, play in, in position as an initial razor, 
play big blind out position as a caller. Okay, this is just going to be the most frequent spots that you should start nailing down. Uh, a last point that we also made in terms of solvers, uh, a lot of players might use a solver because they want to look up if they played the hand correct. And he clearly was talking more about using solvers to develop solid strategies so that you never fall under a certain baseline, right? To generate a solid C game. I think this is a very important uh, uh, takeaway of how you can use solvers in a more efficient way. All right. I mean, I'm sure there was many, many more goodness, but you know, we have to sum up a couple of points. Re-listen to the pot if you want to go through all. Actually, I hear sometimes people listen to pots multiple times. Uh, shout out to you guys because they're quite long. Uh, I mean, people have a lot of wisdom to share, so it would be a waste to only talk to them for an hour, in my opinion. And if you're still listening to this right now, me rambling, you agree on this point. All right. I'm going to now close it off because it's getting way too long. I want to thank Adam and I want to thank Jans, of course, for coming on. Remember, leave a like and your main comments, your main takeaway comments down below. And you get a chance to win uh, one month free on GTO Wizard. We will pick between the comments down below who share their main takeaways. We will pick one and he will get a free one month of GTO Wizard. So make sure to do that. And I will see you guys in the next podcast episode.